Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We are continuing our journey through the world of The Matrix with the 2003 sequel, The Matrix Reloaded, one of my favorite movie sequel titles of all time, if nothing else. Yes. I had a revelation watching the movie uh, yesterday where I've always only thought of the title of that movie in relationship to guns, and I never realized that also you load things on computers, and it is also a computer pun. And I, I was had like, never oh. thought of that. Oh my. Yeah, it's also it's a computer thing also. It's just like I saw the title come up, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's also a computer thing. Okay, and, and greatest, my mind was blown. Greatest movie sequel title of all time. It's only competition yep. is like the sequel or something, but like, or Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. But uh, I think Matrix Reloaded is genuinely good, not just ironic. It's fucking great. Yes, it is. It is a phenomenal sequel title for sure. But how is it as a movie? That'll be our topic today. I think let's give a, a quick preview, Sean, because people know my thoughts. I think I'm very loud about this on Twitter. The Matrix. I I am very strongly of the opinion that the Matrix sequels are great, and I have been uh, of that opinion for a while now. But Sean, this was your first time revisiting the movie in a long time, right? Yes, I think probably the last time I would have seen this movie is like maybe sophomore year of high school, kind of like uh, maybe even earlier than that. We had the DVD, um, but at some point we also lost the DVD because I do not have the DVD anymore. So I don't know what yeah. happened to it at some point. Well, what um, are your what are your sort of, I, I was going to say spoiler free, spoilers don't matter, but you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, your reactions uh, to this old movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm a little mixed on it. Like there's... Stuff about it that I really love. I think conceptually, it's all the right ideas for a sequel to The Matrix. And I love a lot of like the thematic elements of the film. I think some of the execution doesn't really do it for me in terms of there's like a certain fuzziness of like character motivation and stuff like that, particularly for the middle section of the movie where a lot of the action is set. And I think I kind of find the action to be a little bit dull, not because the action sequences themselves are poorly done, but because the narrative around it doesn't sort of like push the action in a way that's super compelling to me. And so there's a certain amount of like the movie that I really wish was more kind of plotting and philosophical than it actually is. Cause when it's in its very philosophical mode, I really find it interesting. And then when it's more like, and it's the matrix and we're going to do crazy matrix shit. I don't find that side of the movie as compelling as I was kind of hoping to revisiting it so much later. Well, that's the end of the Weekly Stuff podcast. We are canceling the show. I cannot abide anyone who didn't know I'm kidding. Um, that's interesting. I think this is going to be an interesting talk because I also think just like on the level of action, I think this is like the most virtuoso action movie of its decade, at least in Hollywood. It's like the worst action scene in this movie to me is still better than like the best action scene in most movies of like certainly its era. So anyway, we will talk about all of that. Uh, I am excited for that, but you know, I think that's going to be the main thing today. Cause I do not have any news on the outline. I didn't see anything this week. I don't know if you had anything. No, I don't think so. And I don't have much stuff, honestly, but I'm curious if you have any stuff, Sean. I do have, yes, I do have a piece of stuff to address. Um, this is addressed specifically to occasional Thomas, a, you know, all-time listener of the podcast, occasionally participant of the podcast, the occasional Thomas. Uh, I am playing Persona 5 Royal. Uh, that game is fucking great. I, I don't know if, like, I feel like we maybe have, like, 10 hours of the, 10 plus <laughs> hours for me of the podcast, because also there's when I played the Japanese version in late 2016 of the original Persona 5. Um... But yeah, I've I have spent a lot of time in the past week uh, playing Persona Five Royal, and it's an absolutely phenomenal game. Like I think it is 
I'm, I'm nowhere near close to getting to the end or like the, the latter sections of the game, which is where most of the new royal content with like your new party member being a party member and there's like a new dungeon and all that stuff I know. And there's like a lot of extra story stuff near deeper into the game. So I'm still like relatively in the early sections. I'm wrapping up the second palace. Um, so like kind of the second dungeon in the game. Uh, so there's not a huge amount of impressions I can give on what is different about this specific version of the game, other than that it, it feels like this very nice um, sort of just like nice little tweaks here and there, um, just like kind of a tightening of different elements that they've done, where it does feel like the royal version kind of touches every piece of the game in kind of subtle ways to just kind of smooth it out even more. There are lots of smart little tweaks to the combat system, like the way that guns work in the game that are a lot more kind of viable as a more normal strategy in combat, whereas that wasn't really kind of practical in the original game because of the way that ammo worked, and they've changed that. They've made the baton pass mechanic something that is like default by characters so that it's like you can kind of pass on turns to other characters when you get a kind of critical hit or exploit an enemy's weakness. And every time you pass on a turn, it kind of levels up a character, which is an ability you had to unlock per character in the original game. That mechanic's just unlocked by default, and some of the new combat encounters are kind of designed more around being very thoughtful about how you use that mechanic, which is really cool. Um, and then there's lots of just smart little smoothings out of like the pacing of it allows you to do more stuff at night and do it more frequently, which is a pretty common criticism of the original game that you pretty frequently were not able to do any of the kind of like social activities at night during the story sections. And you had like big long story streaks that like you couldn't really do much gameplay stuff. And they've smoothed out a lot of that kind of pacing. So while I haven't gotten to the big new stuff in Persona 5 Royal, and this will be a while before I hit that, it is just a really nice, smart kind of version of the game that is taking, I think, every piece of the original game, both stuff that could use improvement and stuff that I would have thought was like, oh, this is basically perfect, but found room to improve everything pretty uniformly. And in that way, I'm, I, it feels a lot more kind of like Persona 3 Fest to me than it does Persona 4 The Golden, where Persona 4 The Golden, while it is the better version of the game, and I like Persona 4 The Golden a lot, there are changes and things that they did to that game that aren't, that I think kind of change it for the worse. And some of that is there's some tone stuff in the story. Some of that is I think they balance the game to make it a lot easier um, in Persona 4 The Golden. Um, and that kind of stuff, I don't think was like uniformly all uniformly always for the better. And so far in Persona 5 Royal, everything I've read into has felt like a, like this is a really smart choice of people that were very thoughtful about the game that they had made, seen the criticism of it, and had like maybe elements and things that they wanted to put into the game that they couldn't originally. And everything is just like tweaked and refined to this like extra level of perfection um, in what was already the most kind of like really refined and kind of polished entry in the series so far. So, yeah, that's what I'm um, curious about with that game, uh, going back to it at some point, is I just regard the original Persona 5 as like so ludicrously polished already i'm fascinated to see what are the things like you're naming a couple of them but i'm curious to see how that works because it's i think that's one of the reasons why i hadn't felt as super motivated on it is just because the original felt so polished but you know i've heard that from you and from others but uh i'm not playing it out of spite i i just people have been saying it to me too much so out of spite nope never playing it it, I do I'm think kidding. one thing I'm enjoying is I, I am actually kind of glad that we have waited on it a little bit longer because I think like having, especially for me, because I'd already played Persona 5 twice, right? I mm -hmm. played the Japanese version, then I played the English version, and that was like 
playing that 100 hour long game six months apart like that wasn't even a year long gap between my two playthroughs of persona 5 um and so having this extra time um is really nice because i mean it's been four years basically at this point since the original game or like almost four years and then it's been about five years since the japanese version so it's been about five years since i started playing persona 5 originally and so it's it's a good gap to kind of revisit that game and in many ways i also think that there are things about the story that are hitting me harder and kind of different than they did originally i think partially because the, the game has a lot of, like, resonance, I think, with the kind of, like, Me Too or post-Me Too, post-Weinstein kind of culture and the, like, I'm going to use sneer quotes here, but, like, the cancel culture thing. Like, I don't want to, like, get into a cancel culture discussion but because it's, like, an awful term. But when you use it, people understand what you're talking about. So you're kind of, like, resigned to have to use the term in some form. But it very much is, it like, playing with these ideas of, like, social media and of... Um, there's a lot of Gundam-y concepts very intentionally of, like, children and dealing with, like, adults and, like, corrupt adults and, like, the world that adults have created in their world. And this desire for justice and exposing crime and injustice in powerful individuals that feels, like, really resonant to me with um, kind of, like, the like different elements of the current culture, both in, like, the positive elements of that culture, then also some of the ones that, like, in smaller communities can be dangerous um, with like the kind of like fervor um, that gets wrapped up in all of that, and so that that element of the story, I'm actually like pretty fascinated by how differently kind of some of those different pieces of the story are inflected very differently for me based on like just things that have happened since that game came out um, in ways that to me like make the story feel even uh, richer. And it was already I, I thought quite a rich story in the first place. Yeah, that makes me very excited. At some point. I don't know. I'm I'm so busy. I have not like I I have been playing games a little bit this last week. Um, I'm particularly right now. I've been working through a game called Cyber Shadow, which is uh, I mentioned that last week. It's an indie game that uh, Yacht Club published, the the studio that public that that made Shovel Knight. They did not make this one, but they published it. Um, that I think is just a phenomenal, phenomenal indie um, sort of eight bit style game, sort of in the in the vein of like a Ninja Gaiden. And I've been having... I'm going to talk about that more probably on the end of the year podcast because I imagine that's going to be pretty high on my top 10. So I'll just... I'll hold that because I'm still not done with it. But that's sort of what I've had the time to play. And that's a game like I play in like little 20, 30 minute chunks. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I have not had a ton of time to, to dig into a game. So I've been a little intimidated. But at some point, I'm just going to have to bite the bullet and put that Persona 5 Royal disc in and then lose my whole life to it. Yeah, because it is... It, you know, it, I've started playing it and I'm like well fuck here I am like here it is again like I thought it's like oh I'm not gonna get completely sucked up I've already played this game to completion twice and it's like no it is like so kind of like all consuming um because it's just you start playing it you're like yep this is like one of the best video games I've ever played so here we go Persona 5 here we go again yep that's what they should have called it Persona 5 Reloaded speaking of which do you want to just use that as our transition to talk about Matrix sure might as well all right, then this week's show is going to be all about The Matrix Reloaded. This this movie, man, I have a lot of memories from when this came out because I was too young to see The Matrix in theaters. But yeah. and I was really too young to see The Matrix Reloaded in theaters either. Uh huh. But I was so invested in it um, at that point. I was I kind of berated my parents. We finally I saw The Matrix Reloaded at the Cinderella Twin Drive-In Theater 
in uh, Denver, Colorado. This is a movie I saw for the first time at a drive-in movie theater. For people younger than us, a drive-in movie theater was a theater that was outside and you would drive in your car and it's like a big dirt parking lot and there's a big screen that's basically just like a big wooden billboard and then a shitty projector puts the movie on that and you listen through the AM or FM radio in your car. Um, it was a really weird way to watch a movie when I say that now. It was really cool. It was really fun. Nobody knows yeah. what those are anymore. I, I like, Jonathan, you say that as if that is, like, a thing that is common to our generation. It's like, yeah, we all went to drive-in movie theaters. That's an old thing even when you I saw know. The Matrix Reloaded. Like, that was an, an outdated, but, archaic way of seeing a movie in the fucking 90s, let alone the early 2000s. But they still existed, is my point. Like, that yeah. was still, like, a big drive-in that was there and was popular and, like, you had to get there early and stuff. Those, I mean, there's there is a drive-in that I've been to here in Iowa, but is a much smaller sort of thing. Um, it's just, it's a, such a rare thing now. Like, like I know it was kind of archaic in 2003, but you know, I did, we did do that as a family a lot. So I have memories of it. Yeah. But I have, I have never actually been to a drive-in movie theater, which is why you being like, and for people who does this, like, I'm like, Jonathan, when we were kids, nobody, like if you said, it's like, oh, I went to see a drive-in movie theater. Would you see this movie? Most of the people would be like, what the fuck are you talking about, Jonathan? All right. Well, anyway, I am an old soul. That's how I saw The Matrix Reloaded. I remember, I mean, this was one of the most hyped movies of all time. I The Matrix mm-hmm. Reloaded was also a just massive hit. It made, in 2003, $740 million. That would have been unbelievable today for, like, an R-rated movie. Like, that's up where, like, Deadpool and Deadpool 2 were and were considered, like, groundbreaking R-rated, you know, hits for, like, superhero movies. Matrix mm-hmm. Reloaded was, like, a massive cultural moment. They made this and Matrix Re- uh, Revolutions, the, the third film, at the same time. They shot those movies between um, March 2001 and August 2002. It was, like, a 15-month shoot took forever which means that like even though it took four years for reloaded to come out they were working pretty steadily from the moment that first movie came out because writing those scripts and prevising everything and everything i mean they were shooting less than two years after that first movie came out the two sequels and then this came out in may 2003 and revolutions came out in november revolutions did not do as well um you'll notice that subsequent like two-part movies like this generally did not do the like five months apart thing they went for Mm -hmm. longer splits because matrix reloaded kind of i think cannibalized the box office of matrix revolutions six months later um but yeah the one we're talking about today is the matrix reloaded um and of course around this we had the game enter the matrix and we had the animatrix and everything else one of the most hyped sequels of all time yes because because we shouldn't forget that while they were filming matrix related matrix revolutions back to back they were also filming the material in enter the matrix as well yes they were they were filming Two movies and live action cutscenes for one video game, um, all in that that section. So it is, I mean, it's like what we talked about on the last podcast of while you know for people who are younger than us, it might seem weird to think of like the Matrix as this massive, massive IP because it hasn't had like this long legacy because there's only been like that a handful of movies in the couple of games basically. But like when this was happening it felt like it was like the explosion of this massive new IP, massive new franchise where you've got the games coming out and the movies are coming out and it kind of was like the Matrix was everywhere um, at this point. Well, the Ma- yeah, the Matrix had you. Uh, no, I mean, it was everywhere and I think it's also worth saying it was a massive IP for its time. It's just our yeah. idea of massive IP now is like Marvel 
and it will never end and it will go forever and there will be five movies a year and seven Disney Plus shows and blah 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 and like you know seven of the ten highest grossing movies of the year will be Disney releases and like you know that just wasn't what things were like in 2003 <laughs> so yeah like in 2003 things ended yes they don't do that yeah. anymore we, we live in like the eternal media landscape of where there's like three movies and those and we just keep making those three movies uh-huh. um yeah yeah so you know look i matrix reloaded i had gone a while without seeing the matrix sequels and then when i was putting my notes together last night for this podcast sean i did go back and search out all my like old tweets i do this sometimes because sometimes i have like I use my Twitter as like notes almost and I look up old ideas I had and I found that uh, the last so the first time in recent years I had done a full rewatch of the Matrix trilogy was in July 2019 and then I did them all again when I got the 4k discs in January of this year and then now October 2021 when we're doing this so in the last two years I have watched the trilogy now three times is this is my third time through and the first time I revisited The Matrix Reloaded, I definitely had this feeling of, okay, this movie is messy in some ways, I can see some of the seams, but man, what is brilliant about this movie is just so brilliant, and I think it's also, it's something I just feel when we go back to stuff like Lord of the Rings, and Spider-Man 2, and some of the great stuff from this period, just like, oh right, Hollywood doesn't make stuff like this anymore. Like mm-hmm. this just, this kind of movie on this level of imagination, and like this level of craft, it's just not a thing. Just Hollywood doesn't do it. Just put it out of your mind. It's not a thing that exists anymore. And it is like kind of stunning now to go back and look at something that is like inventing as much as this movie is. I mean, the the visual effects breakthroughs of this movie alone are just, um, I think uh, people generally don't understand how much this movie broke through. Stuff like using a virtual camera. It was basically invented by this movie and is now a common thing that multiple movies have won Oscars for. But, like, this movie invented that. It has amazing story stuff, I think. And, you know, so I, then I've, I rewatched it again a year later and I've rewatched it again now six months after that. And every time I watch it, I honestly, like, exponentially more, I find this movie fascinating. I find it so entertaining. I love all the component pieces. I think it has some of the best action scenes I've ever seen in a movie. I, I love this movie. And of course, I'm also inevitably reading this through the lens of I know Matrix Revolutions very intimately also. And that does very much color my reading of this movie. Um, which I might, you know, might be a little different for you, Sean, because you haven't seen Revolutions in a long time either. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll just like put my cards on the table. I remember very little of the Matrix Revolutions. And in fact, although actually I remember more of it than I realized because some of the stuff, the Agent Smith stuff that's in Revolutions in my memory was in this movie. Um, so there's like pieces of that, and I'm like, oh, um, because it is very much a while it is a much more elegant thing they do than than the recent Dune movie, it is very much a part one, part two kind of thing. Yes. Um, so so it is like the some of like what happens in the next movie got mixed up in what happens in Reloaded in my head. But yeah, like outside of, I obviously remember the ending. Ending. I remember the giant Dragon Ball fight. I remember, you know, the, spoilers. Neo dies. Yeah. Oh my god. Spoilers. Um I remember that stuff. Um and I remember Sean, like, these movies the... are eighteen years old. They're old yes. enough to vote. Spoilers don't apply. <laughs> yeah, I remember like the dawn. Like it's like the ending ending of the trilogy is very distinct in my memory. But other than the fact that there's like action scenes and they're fighting like the machines and stuff in the real world, most of like the bulk of that third movie I just have no memory of whatsoever. Um so so in many ways I am hitting reloaded pretty fresh. 
um, in terms of like not necessarily remembering the specifics of all the stuff and certainly like the thematic stuff that goes on in the third movie I can mostly guess at and not like specifically remember so for me it is like definitely it is closer to hitting reloaded fresh um, than I think like normally you'd have just because it has been I mean at this point I'm pretty sure unless I maybe saw it shortly on home video shortly after it was in the movie theaters I maybe have only seen Matrix Revolutions in the movie theaters when I was like 12 years old um, yeah so it, like it, and so my memory of that movie is going to be very, very fucking faint at this point. Right. So yeah, and I'm just saying that not to discredit your opinion, Sean, just to say we're coming at it from slightly different angles. Yeah. Of one, this is almost like the opposite of how we do Gundam. I'm very intimately familiar with like, like I can recite the two Matrix sequels basically at this point because I've watched them so many times in the last couple of years and thought about them and written about them and you know I find them very fascinating. Um, but yeah, and it is a part one, part two thing. Like Reloaded starts with the uh, all of the the crews having this meeting, learning about this Sentinel attack that is coming, and that is the plot of the two movies. Like the two yeah. movies take place in this big seventy-two hour block where the Sentinels are drilling down to Zion, and everything is very compressed as everything is happening. So Reloaded does like is very elegant I think in having its own sort of like story and thrust and it does not end on like a like oh man I only got half a story it ends on like things have been resolved and new things have been set up and then there's a pretty killer cliffhanger um, but it is like it's going to be a little awkward to talk about just because it is very much like a part one of two two movies yeah and I think the character that like is hit by that the most is Agent Smith who has like some of the stuff in this movie is interesting but he's got not a lot to do yet because most of like what that character is, I feel like, is in the next movie, the fact that he's, like, in the real world. Um, and, yes. that, and that's, like, kind of, like, the most of what they do in this movie is kind of set up the role that he's going to play in the next film. Yeah, well, he, yeah, because he's not the focus of this movie. He is very much going to be the big bad for the third movie. And here he is this sort of menace that comes around and gets a couple of... I mean, he's fucking entertaining as hell in it. He's got some great yeah. scenes. Hugo Weaving is having so much fun. But, yeah, he's, he's not the big focus yet. Yeah. Yeah. So, where do you want to start? I mean, I, like, I again, I, I think I've given a lot of my thoughts, and I think if anyone reads me at all online knows my thoughts on Matrix Reloaded. But do you want to go in-depth on sort of your overall thoughts a little bit more, Sean? Yeah, because I'll also talk like, a little bit about like my history with the movie, because, you know, I do have very strong memories of this film. Um, I don't have like as strong memories of, of the third one. Um, but but this was but partially because with this movie, we did own the DVD. So I did watch it a couple of times um, when I was a kid um, on DVD. And yeah, like I definitely have like a lot of vivid memories of like loving a lot of like the action stuff it's like it's like the freeway chase scene is obviously like the thing right like that's the big action set piece of this movie that like has always stuck out in my mind a lot um and so that stuff i always gravitated to a lot and i also this movie has like a weird place in in my heart i guess of or like in my mind of like i have such a like profoundly distinctive memory of watching this movie in the movie theater or one part of this movie because this is like, I don't know if this is exactly the first movie with a sex scene in it I've ever seen, but it is definitely the first movie I saw with a sex scene in it in a movie theater and sitting next to my dad. Yes, and me too. That's, that's the, a, yeah. The profound awkwardness of that experience and being like a, like, I got to make sure I know what's going to be in these fucking movies before I go to the movie with my parents anymore. Because, uh, because man, it's, it is 
Like, that is very awkward. Although that is one of those things where when you get to that scene where it's like, Hollywood movies don't have sex scenes in them anymore. Um, and so it's like, there is something very nice about revisiting this, um, like, what is an incredibly well done um, version of one of those. But when you're like an 11 year old boy seeing this movie with your dad in the movie theater, it is definitely a like, you know, sex ed class was like a fresh thing in my life at that point, you know? So right. it's like definitely a very awkward, weird kind of coming of age moment. Um, and so in many ways, like this movie has like this like iconic part in the memory of my own childhood of like that kind of development um, that is, I find very amusing because it is, it is just of all the things in the movie, that is the one thing that like is going to be burned into my memory until the day I die is the feeling of awkwardness and of like sitting in that seat, watching this being like a, Oh, okay. This is a thing I have to experience it. I have to like think about now with my dad right next to me. So the reason we saw it at the drive-in movie theater is because my parents knew there was a sex scene in it and they were fine with all the other stuff that made it an R rating. They didn't think it was, cause the first movie is not inappropriate. It's fine. Yeah. It's, it's a couple of F bombs and some blood, you know? Yeah. It's even then the violence is not very bloody. Yeah. So like, um, and you know, and I still think matrix reloaded, like I, I think you could get that sex scene into a PG 13 movie. If we did sex scenes in movies, there's nothing explicit in it. Um, but like, my dad was a total fucking prude. And so, like, we saw it in the drive-in, so it was easier for them to cover our eyes. It was stupid. Anyway, um, you know, if, if any Americans listening, you know we have a stupid, unhealthy, bullshit relationship with sex in movies. And it's gotten even worse over time, frankly, not better. I mean, we are at a we are at a low ebb, but we are we are like approaching a like fucking like nineteen fifties people sleeping in separate beds era of like American cinema with like how sexless movies have gotten. Yeah, but in the nineteen fifties, you at least had like people smoking after they're like very heavily implied they just fucked. Like yes. like even nineteen fifties movies were way more horny than movies we get these days. No, I mean yeah, Captain America is a Ken doll. Everyone in yeah, the only the only like Marvel superhero who we know has like genitalia is iron man because he has a kid um at the very very end of his his tenure so there you go yeah yep anyway um we'll talk about that more later because it is i think one of the pivotal scenes of the entire trilogy yeah um but yeah but but anyways that's kind of like some of my history like memories of watching this movie but but yeah so after seeing in the movie theater seeing it a couple times on dvd like i definitely rewatched it like when i watched the animatrix for the first time and stuff like that um, like we talked about in the last podcast, there's just like a long part of my life where like the Matrix as a franchise was just kind of like dormant for me because I just didn't go back and revisit it. So I was very excited to watch this movie because like I I was hoping to I was hoping to have like the kind of experience that I had rewatching the prequels for this podcast in the sense of obviously the famous thing or the infamous thing about the Matrix sequels is that they were like largely panned in broad popular culture, even though like at the time the Matrix Reloaded, Reloaded's critical reception was actually quite good. Um, there's definitely, I think, a lot of revisionist history that I was kind of surprised looking at. It was like, no, like critics generally quite liked the Matrix Reloaded. It wasn't like, you know, like everybody thought it was an incredible masterpiece, but it wasn't something that like people just sort of like threw out to the street it like sort of just like beat like a dog or something the way that I think these movies are generally thought of in popular culture very much in the same framework as the prequels were it was I I will say I think it is a mix of the I mean revolutions was critically panned 
we can yeah. that is just a fact when you look at the the critical reception of that one and then i think it was 2003 was probably an oversaturation of matrix like the public was just very oversaturated with two movies and all these games and just it was everywhere the animatrix was the same year i mean everything was like it was just an absolute avalanche of matrix stuff and i think there was this sort of public pushback that you do see some later franchises i think learned some of the lessons of not going like all the fucking way in on something like that um but yeah i think there was a public pushback more than there was a critical pushback mm-hmm. um which is also kind of true of the star wars prequels if you go back and read the reviews um yeah the Star Wars prequels were also not largely panned that way. Um, that is also revisionist history. But anyway, um, yeah. Yeah, and so, so like, for a long time, I think one of the reasons why I didn't revisit The Matrix was just this, like, there's that sense of just, like, cultural heaviness or something on you, especially, like, you know, being, like, a, a teenager of where you're like, oh, I can't go watch the bad movies. Now is now is the time in my life where I must go watch the good movies, right? Like, it's very much that kind of, like, developmental period uh, where it's like, you can't like the prequels because everyone says the prequels are bad. You can't like the Matrix sequels because everyone says that they're bad, so why bother go watching them again, even if I do remember Morpheus with the katana was very cool. Um, and so I didn't revisit those movies for a long time, and I was I really wanted to kind of reclaim the movie. And I don't know if I, like... Again, I, I I can't really come at it and say that I feel like it is a like resounding success. I find I'm kind of conflicted on the movie because I feel the movie is kind of conflicted of where I I just wish that the movie was allowed itself to be more of the kind of like navel gazing philosophical like exploration of like the nature of free will than it actually lets itself be because I think when it's doing that stuff, I really love it. Um, and, and some of like the dialogue scenes, like the scene between Neo and the Oracle, Neo and the Merovingian, Neo and um, uh, uh, the Architect, all those scenes I really find very interesting, and um, I enjoy that side of the movie of like this Neo going from like kind of like mentor figure to mentor figure, like you know early on he talks to the counselor or whatever, um, when they're in Zion, and him kind of like exploring this very mushy vague hard to define concept of like purpose and reason and like the why of if you live in this like world where your choices are controlled for you where do you find purpose or meaning in things kind of is sort of part of his exploration and i find that very interesting but i think when that then like comes into contact with and now we have to do like big crazy matrix fights like, I kind of feel like those two sides of the movies destroyed each other to me a little bit of where I find myself kind of not super interested anymore in the action stuff, which is a complete flip of how I used to feel about the movie. It used to be like, ah, all the talking, I don't know, it's weird. Like, it's just a lot of people sitting in a room talking about like weird, vague philosophical concepts. I want to get to the part where they have the big fight scenes. And then now I kind of like want the fight scenes to wrap up because I want them to get back to exploring some of the more of like the thematic elements of the movie. I think part of it is because the movie's interest is so, I think, like, like it's it's so broadly philosophical. It's moved a lot away from, I think, the more kind of symbolic, multivalent symbol approach of the first movie to being this more kind of just like generally philosophical exploration. And that means that a lot of the character stuff is more abstract. Um, and that abstractness or that remove I feel from like a connection to the main characters then means that 
I don't find the action to be motivated in a way that makes the action compelling to me, even if I think the action is on a very technical level, generally speaking, very well constructed. I think the storytelling around it, I just kind of wish, I, I wish the movie could be more of like an art house film and it was just a bunch of people talking for two hours about cool stuff is kind of, I guess, my takeaway from watching the movie. I get what you're saying, but what's funny is that I think in the public consciousness, that's the problem with the movie for most people, is that I think most people completely forget that there is a lot of action in this movie. I think most people, if you listen to like the, like, how are the Matrix sequels remembered in popular consciousness, they were remembered as like talky, heady, up their own ass, navel-gazing, philosophical movies with nothing to say that are just like people sitting in rooms talking for a bunch of the time. That's wrong. That's not what either of these movies are. Revolutions yeah. is also very action-heavy. Um, but like... That is completely the memory of it. And it is, I do think it is still striking to watch a movie like this that is a Hollywood movie that cost $150 million, that made almost a billion dollars, that was this giant fucking thing that has significant, heavy, huge stretches of time devoted to philosophical conversations. Like, that Oracle scene is not short, and it is followed up by a big conversation with Agent Smith that then leads you to the Burley Brawl, which is great. But, like... You know, you have the scene with the Merovingian, which is, like, probably the most, like, alienating scene to a lot of people with this movie is this just long conversation in this restaurant where he makes a woman come with a piece of chocolate cake. Uh -huh. in, and it's, like, and I find that fucking great. And to me, like, the magic of The Matrix and of The Wachowskis is that you can have that scene and 20 minutes later, Morpheus is cutting a car in half with a katana and an Uzi. Like, that is The Matrix to me is, like, that fucking blend right there. Um but definitely in the public consciousness, the the amount of ideas going on in the movie is the, like, you realize that what people, like, gravitated to in the first Matrix, I think, that made it popular was, like, the style and the aesthetic and the action and stuff. And so when the movies kind of double down on, or the sequels do have a lot of philosophizing and ideas and, like, they want you to think, they I really do think these movies want you to think actively, that is part of what I think gets them so resoundingly rejected. In the same way I do think there's some of that with the Star Wars prequels. Yeah. Like, I, I, yeah, it's definitely... The, the movie is asking you to, like, directly interrogate your preconceptions about choice and free will. Um, and, 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 and then how much of that you then want to extend it to, like, we live in a society, right, of, like, the sort of, like, Marxist elements of the movie... Um, but but it is it does want you to engage directly with the philosophical concepts. But there is a part of that where, like, the first movie, you can very easily watch the first movie, have a very fun experience, and not, like, think about anything in it. But the first movie does have, like, every part of it is so elegantly constructed to, like, create this very powerful whole that is exploring, like, really deep, interesting, evocative ideas and and it is this like perfectly cohesive movie to me whereas like i think that is my issue with the matrix reloaded is i don't find all the like sort of disparate elements of the movie don't necessarily cohere to me into like one larger whole and maybe part of that is because it is part of it is that it's a one half of a like two-part structure so maybe that will be fixed in some ways by me like revisiting and more deeply engaging with matrix revolutions but it does feel like like I can't escape the feeling of like watching sections of this movie and getting to that freeway chase scene and just like enjoying it on a technical level, but kind of looking at my watch a little bit being like, well, can we wrap this up? Because I feel like there's a lot more stuff that I want you guys to get to or to explore conceptually with the story you're telling. 
and a giant action scene that Neo is not involved in in any way that is about a character, the keymaker, who is, like, basically just a plot device. There's not a lot of, like, strong narrative motivation pushing through that action scene to me to justify, like, the the scale of all of it. And that's kind of, like, you know, my problem with the movie in the nutshell is, like, I wish that it was more focused and cohesive with, like, what it wanted to focus on. Um, and then I think it would have then made both the philosophical elements and the action stuff work a lot better for me than um, I actually feel like they did. Yeah, so, I mean, and I will say, I am 100% of the opinion the first Matrix is, if we want to do the conversation, the best one. Like, I don't super care about that conversation, but, like, it is. It is the most cohesive, it is the most perfect. I mean, the original Matrix is one of the most perfect, like, Hollywood yeah. movies ever made. It's flawless. There's, I don't, I don't think there's any version of a Matrix sequel that would be worth doing that would not be messier than the original Matrix. Mm-hmm. Like, that is part of just, like, I think there is a necessary messiness to these sequels that I think a lot of people have pushed against. And I guess my view has always been, if you are going to make a sequel that is actually a worthy successor to the like size of the ideas and the world that the first Matrix is introducing, it's going to have to be messier than that first movie. I just think that is an inevitable thing, and I do think some of the most interesting movie sequels are a little messier. I I sometimes get pushback on this. I think The Empire Strikes Back is a messier movie than Star mm-hmm. Wars. Like it is a like its structure is a little weird in places. Its pace is a little weird. And now notice I'm not saying bad because I don't think that makes it bad, but it is like it's it splits up the cast and it is a little less like propulsive and all of that and that makes it richer, I think. I think it's also true of like The Godfather Part 2 when you look at the great sequels, they often are a little messier and and a little like more diffuse and and take more time to kind of land their punches um and i do think that about the matrix sequels and i do think you kind of have to view them together but i also think reloaded on its own the the more i've watched it because i will say in like 2019 my first rewatch in several years when i came back to it i did have i think some of what you were saying here sean where i did feel some of that like lack of cohesion bothered me even as i just found the like amount of things it was doing that I found very strong, like very much pulled me through. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's not like I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah. And, and I agree that like, you know, I want to make it clear that like my issues with the movie, like are still like on the scale of like, I agree with what you say about that. Hollywood doesn't make sequels like movies like this in general, but certainly like the approach to sequels um, is so much more comfortable and safe and it's part of what we talked about on the last Matrix podcast is there's something I very much respect about the Wachowskis' rep- approach of, like, shutting down the, like, eternal Matrix IP take on it, right? That that this movie is not a, like, simple... And now there's, like, another adventure that we have in the Matrix and we have a bunch of more just, like, kung fu fights and it's sort of the same story again, only, like, a little bit more bombastic, which is the approach that, like... 90% of Hollywood sequels just take it. They're like, eh, it's, it's you know, another adventure with Iron Man. It's another adventure with Captain America. Um, and, and those sequels can still be fun. There's nothing necessarily wrong with just having a, like, oh, we're just going to have a good time and make a very sort of standard, normal sequel to a movie. But it's never going to be something that is, like, as bold or compelling or interesting as really going for it and trying to break fresh ground and really complicate your understanding of of the original movie and what it was doing. And that is the approach that the Wachowskis take, is that it is, this movie is one that is trying to sort of like, 
fracture the much more sort of basic takes takes on the original Matrix. Um, it is it is not something that I don't think like. I, I think you can see a lot of what this movie is doing in the original Matrix because a lot of what this movie does is stuff that the original Matrix movie suggests like the fact that this was not the first time they have made a Matrix is a thing that the first Matrix says that's not a fact that the art architect introduces to you for the first time. If you're like paying attention to that first movie, a lot of those ideas are there. They're just like not fully explored. Um, so it's it's not doing something that is totally like unwarranted or out of nowhere, but it is like really digging into weird corners that are sort of evoked or suggested by that first movie and breaking it up and exploring it and getting in there. And it just is not interested in being a very safe sequel. And so that is going to create a lot of messiness. I think they could have, I think they still could have done better with like the messiness that is there. I don't think it needs to be as sort of like fragmented and disparate um, as it is, but all that being said, this approach that they take is definitely like a much more interesting and preferred approach to the Matrix 2, Here We Go Again, which it's very easy to imagine another world where that is what we had. And right now we're watching, you know, we're doing a podcast breaking down the 12 episode long Matrix HBO Max reboot or whatever, Jesus you know. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you're right. And I... And I very much think, and I think if you particularly read some of what I've said about, like, The Architect, and at some point I'm going to have to actually expand this into, like, an academic paper or something, I think The Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions are also kind of a refutation of the idea of sequels in a lot of ways, like, and, and or our normal perception of sequels. I think mm -hmm. they are very meta in a lot of ways, and, and I think in very interesting and productive ways, and honestly in ways that I think have made the movies more interesting with age, not less. Like, I think... I think the I think the stuff with the architect is fucking prophetic in terms of what it is saying about the audience's relationship with like explicability in storytelling. Mm -hmm. Like I think this movie is prophetic. Um and and I think there's stuff like that that is just brilliant. And you know, I guess the and and I guess I think you and I are on the same page here in that I am just so much less interested in the conversation of are the matrix sequels good than are they interesting? And like what I like you and I having this sort of, frankly, mild disagreement on, like, does it uh -huh. work for us 100%? That's fine. What I won't abide and what pisses me off in the conversation about these movies is the dismissal and the shutdown of, like, there's just they're just up their own ass or there's nothing there or blah, 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 or they're the bad ones and all of this stuff. And that's the stuff that pisses me off because I think there is... The, the refusal to engage with the movies, which is also, I think, kind of what the movies are about, is like, and it's the same thing with the Star Wars prequels, that's what pisses me off, not so much whether or not you, quote-unquote, like them. Like, do you know what I mean, Sean? Yes. Like, And I know this is like a hard nuance to get across in the Year of Our Lord 2021, where we have just reduced everything to the stupidest ways of talking about media, but like... You know, boy, Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions are not sequels built for 2021 in that way. Like, you know, you would not, you extra would not make a movie like this today because the audience would just revolt. Like, they just shut down if this came out today because it's like too, it's asking too much of you at a certain point. And I don't want to come off as elitist and like you're stupid if you don't like these movies. That's not quite what I'm saying. But I do think you're kind of stupid if you're not willing to engage with them. That's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, the, it's just, it's not. It's not a movie that is going to be palatable to people who want to turn their brain off and just enjoy an action movie, right? It's just, it's simply not that kind of movie. There's nothing wrong with, like, just dumb action movie that you turn your brain off, right? I had a lot of fun 
uh, halfway through this movie, having the revelation that uh, the actor that plays Seraph in this movie is also the bad guy in Flashpoint, uh, Donnie Yen Kung Fu movie, and and I took a bathroom break in the middle of Matrix Reloaded, and then I just watched that the last fight of Flashpoint uh, on YouTube because <laughs> I was like, I just have to get that out of my system before I continue to watch this movie because it blew my mind when I realized that that is who that guy is because I've never seen him in another movie. Um, and Flashpoint, amazing Kung Fu movie. I would not spend like any of my life thinking any deeper about that film than the action scenes are really good because that's all that movie wants to be. That's not what the kind of movie Matrix Related wants to be is. It's just not a turn your brain off and, and, and just like go with the flow kind of thing. It is asking you to think about the dialogue and like the themes and the ideas that the characters are expressing to you. Um, and so, yeah, I'm with you, Jonathan. Yeah. That, like this is a movie that like you shouldn't you you can't be dismissive of you have to like engage with what it is saying and what it is doing whether or not you like it and like the execution of everything to that extent is beyond the point like it's the point is are you engaging with the ideas and are you approaching the movie on the level that it is wanting and inviting to be approached on yeah and you know and i do see kind of what you're saying there is a tension because this is the most action heavy of the three matrix movies it's much action heavier than the first movie and it is like you know there is a certain tension between all of that and you know the highway chase is kind of a i wouldn't say turn your brain off because it is such a complicated like virtuoso sequence but like um you know the movie is also willing to reward your patience with the most fucking kick-ass action ever and i do think i i had a revelation watching the movie last night that like this movie is paced like a musical. This movie is paced like like the action scenes are songs. Like they are big musical set piece numbers that are just giant expressive things that kind of explode in the middle of the movie and then you go back into slightly more sober territory. Um, and, and I find that very invigorating. I do also see what you're saying with it because there is an internal tension there that is also, I think, in the original Matrix and is maybe a little cleaner in the original Matrix and comes out more productively. Um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just think the original Matrix is... Like, the thing that pushes the original Matrix through all that stuff is the fact that it is also a hero's journey story, right? Yes, that's, that's um, what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, and so that plotting then makes it so that the action feels very immediate and relevant to what is going on in the plot and with the characters in a way that I don't think that is true of a lot of the action stuff in The Matrix Reloaded and, and is what I think the movie could most improve on is finding a way to sort of synchronize a lot of what it is trying to say and it's plot stuff and it's like more character dialogue focused moments and then like the big spectacular action scenes they feel like they were like shot with those the sequences to me feel like they were made with very different intentions or something um and i wish that it was more cohesive in that way with like a more singular purpose driving all those sequences throughout the movie but if like with the musical connection it may, maybe makes sense because i also typically don't like musicals it is very rare that i see a musical that i like um, so maybe maybe that's maybe that's what it is. <laughs> but you see what I mean with it, right? It is this mm -hmm. kind of like there's something almost extra diegetic when the movie jumps into action mode. Um, and like you know, the highway, like the difference is that the best action in the first Matrix, like the big fight with Smith at the end, is the expressive culmination of Neo's character arc and a lot of the ideas in the movie, right? So like yeah. you are so in the zone. The big highway chase in this movie is a little bit of a reward for the audience. And also, it's a it's 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 a Trinity and Morpheus's moment to shine. Like that is what that scene is designed to do: is to give Trinity and Morpheus like their big moment in the sun. Um, because otherwise, like I'll I'll just say Morpheus does kind of get left by the wayside in the third movie, and 
just in general, him being the kind of mentor figure from the first movie doesn't have as much to do in the sequels. Um, and then Trinity, uh, otherwise in this stretch of the movie, wouldn't have had as, as much to do. So that's kind of what that's designed to do. But it is not as clean a, like, propulsion as the first movie has. Like, that's obvious. That's, yeah. you know, yeah. But for Morpheus, at least he got, like, an incredible power-up. He is so much more powerful in this movie than he was in the first one. It's like, he goes toe-to-toe with an agent for, like, a solid five minutes. Yeah, like, I mean, that that's... Dude, that dude did some serious kung fu shit between the two movies. I mean, that's my point of, like, I, I do understand the critique of, like, the highway chase in the middle. Also, it's one of the most impressively mounted action scenes in the history of cinema. And it has Morpheus going around with a katana, fighting agents, cutting a car in half. I, it's just, I mean, I don't know. I, I can't complain about something that fucking pure and good. But let's go I ahead can. and... No, you're wrong. All right, let's go in. Let's jump in, Sean, and talk about uh, The Matrix Reloaded a little uh, more in depth. So, you know, I think the first act of this movie and the first major, like stretch to talk about is probably Zion because that is basically the first act of Mm -hmm. the movie and I really do think the stretch in Zion in this movie is one of the most remarkable chunks of world building I've ever seen in like modern Hollywood it is such a cool realization of this city we had heard about in the first movie and I think it is a really cool expansion of a lot of the themes the movies are working with um, building to the Zion rave which is one of the often maligned scenes in this movie and I think is I could argue is the most pivotal like thematic scene in the trilogy I think in a lot of ways and I I wonder if the Wachowskis would say that because I think their hearts are very aligned with what's going on in that scene yeah I like I that scene in in its construction I think are really critical and it's something we talked about in the first Matrix is like you need this like very kind of human connection because you're doing this contrast between the human and the machine with the machine also being this sort of like broad metaphor for like systems and like the systems of power that control and manipulate you, right? And so like you do need, I think, a strong contrast between the sort of like cold, like harsh, unforgiving, brutal logic of the systemic level with the sort of like warm, powerful comfort of and like very human, physical, meaty body part of like being a person living in the world um and and that's very much what that scene is and it is i think a a absolutely necessary thing that's like the features movies need i do kind of wish that it like its placement in the movie feels a little bit awkward to me in the in the sense of like it doesn't have a lot of build-up within this movie in and of itself it feels like a lot of the build-up to that scene is kind of leftover stuff from the first movie um of you don't really get that first movie the full kind of big romantic culmination of neo and trinity you get them having the kiss at the end right but this is a much more sort of like strong intimate um very beautiful sequence with the two of them together and i do wish that there was some other way to kind of construct things i don't know how you would do it because the movie is like trying to do a lot of stuff um but there is something a little bit weird about the pacing of putting like the big speech that Morpheus gives and all of that and and this big sort of powerful intimate moment right at the beginning of this movie um because that is like the stuff that sets everything in motion and I that's one of the elements I'm a little conflicted about of like it, I I feel like you could have had a more strong payoff that this is doing by having a build up to it but also what the movie is wanting to do is using that as like basically like an inciting incident to create the motivation for Neo of what he is exploring and trying to figure out for the rest of the film. 
Yeah, I've, I've felt that before because the Matrix Reloaded does have this, it's a slow first act, like relatively yeah. speaking. It is this big sort of immersive chunk of world building culminating with the, you know, set piece that is the rave intercut with the sex scene. Um, but it is basically like a first act that is largely just sort of world building and not like to your face exposition, but expositing like what the stakes are and what this part of the world looks like and all of that. Um, and I've definitely felt that in some other viewings, and I very much over the years, and, and in certainly the last time I watched it and this time, very much came down on the side that I just find it a very compelling way to start the movie. Um, you know, there is the other side of this that in Revolutions, most of Revolutions is set in Zion. Like, there is mm -hmm. actually very, very little of Matrix Revolutions that happens in the Matrix. It's a little tiny bit at the beginning, and then Neo and Smith at the end. And otherwise, it is all in the real world. Um, and so the Matrix Reloaded goes much harder on the Matrix side of the equation uh, after you get out of Zion. Um, really, you're in the Matrix for the rest of the movie. You're almost never in the real world, except for that little tiny bit at the end. Um, and but, but it works for me. And I think part of it is, again, I just find it like such a cool piece of world building. I think the design of Zion, this whole idea of this city that is down, and it's what they told us in the first movie, that it's down closer to the core of the Earth, or down under, not close to the core of the Earth, but it is down further because it is warmer the further you go down. And it is this city sort of built on machines, but also feels like very raw and real. Um, and it is this like big multi-ethnic um, community um, and it's this assemblage of people who are like you know fully like real humans with none of like the the like mechanized pieces from the matrix mixed with all the people who have been freed um, and you get all of these sort of internal politics where you have like the character Locke who is played by Harry Lennox who is kind of the asshole but also I completely understand why Locke just fucking hates Morpheus because I mean he's to be fair he's 100% right for the yes, whole movie like yes, there's just like I've watched the whole movie is like because one of the things I remembered about Matrix Religion is like, oh, of course, like the prophecy is like, is, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses kind of thing. Um, it's another form that the Matrix uses to control and manipulate people. So it's like, I feel really bad for that guy because it's like, man, you're right the whole time and everyone's just shitting on you. And it's like, you're right. Like, this is all horse shit and you should be like protecting you and yours instead of going off on this like weird namby-pamby fucking philosophical journey trying to figure out your like one bullshit in the matrix it's like let's get real and like fight the fucking system bro the movie's not unaware of it i mean like the a lot of morpheus's arc in this movie is one of being humbled like the movie ends with him looking at the nebuchadnezzar exploding and him reciting the i dreamed a dream thing from the bible mm -hmm. like it's you know it's intentional yeah. um and certainly Locke gets gets to be right in the third movie to a certain degree. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, it, there's there's all of that. And, and meeting Niobe, who's a really cool character. Um, who Star you know, star of hit video game, Enter the Matrix, Matrix, Niobe, with her friend Ghost. That I didn't remember that Ghost, who is the other playable character in that game, you could choose between the two protagonists. He's yeah. got like one line of dialogue in this movie. I thought he had more stuff to do. <laughs> what I love about Niobe, who's played by Jada Pinkett Smith and Ghost, is that like... They look like video game characters, like completely. Yes. They like it feels like the design was done in the video game, and then they went and like put all of that on the people because it's such like her like the way she has the sunglasses and the hair and the jacket and all of that. Because I remember playing Into the Matrix, and it is such a like striking video game character to play, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. yeah. She's kinda... like the only character that's not wearing either all black or all white um, like everybody else. She's like, I'm going to go for this like kind of leather red look. Yeah, totally. But, you know, and, and I love... One thing I really like about Reloaded is it feels like there's this whole other movie or two that happened between the first movie and this one. There is this mm-hmm. real suggestion that like the characters went on living lives in between the two movies. And this is like what Empire Strikes Back does that I yeah. really love. That Empire Strikes Back picks up and like the Re- the rebellion has like moved to Hoth and like all this stuff has happened and Han has been like targeted by all these bounty hunters and Luke has learned all of these new powers and all of this stuff. And I think there's a very similar feeling here that is probably pretty directly inspired by Empire, which is the model yeah. for a lot of movie sequels. But I like that like Neo has been to Zion before. He's garnered a legacy. He's become this messiah. He saved this kid, that kid who's always like following him around in Zion, who I like that kid. I think that's a that's a like fun, like adorable kind of little side of the movie. He's honed his powers. I just think it makes the world feel very alive when you come into the sequel and like, oh, the world has continued in the four years since the last movie came out. Yeah, and 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 I do think that because I do like that, and I generally like that when a sequel's like, let's just move it ahead um, rather than like, it, it's just a much more efficient approach rather than having to always set a sequel like right after the events of the previous movie or anything like that. Um, but part of that does create, I think, that sense of like the first act of this movie feels like it could be the second act of a different Matrix movie, you know? And I think that's part of what I'm saying of like that build up payoff thing with the rave and Morpheus's speech is like you could very easily see that being like the end of the second act of a Matrix movie that the third act is then the machines immediately after that just attacking Zion and that's just what like the story is and there's some there's like an interesting I think kind of like playing with pacing and kind of narrative expectation with that of that you're 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 very much kind of as a viewer you're set a bit adrift in the beginning of this movie not knowing exactly where you are relative to everything else that has happened because it is several months after the end of the last movie yeah it's at least six they have one reference to, i think in the official canon it's supposed to be like six months it feels longer than that to me um but yeah i i you know it does feel like there is the the matrix 2 here we go again happened somewhere in the middle there where like you had another adventure where like neo saved this kid in the matrix and like maybe even the matrix 2 was like this from the kid's pov as he meets neo the superhero or something you know i can very much imagine that yeah and i definitely stuff- read the i read the kid as being basically like he is the audience insert from the end of the first movie that of like yeah. who Neo is talking to, and you can very much I think see that of like the of the the Matrix Two. Here we go again, opening with that same speech that Neo gives. Only it is not just to vaguely the audience; it is specifically the audience like personified in the movie as the kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like all of that, um, and you know I think there is just a significant investment in building Zion as a community with its own aesthetic some of its own rituals um its own visual palette and i think all of that is is cool and important and is a lot of where i think the wachowski's hearts are at especially when you get to the third movie and and so much of it happens in zion you know it is so much of the purpose of the first act of this movie is to kind of lay down the base level of like what are the characters fighting for because if you were just continuing from the first movie of like the basic thing you're fighting for in that first movie is getting out of that system of control and sort of figuring out Neo's powers and all of that, that's not going to sustain a sequel. That's not going to sustain two movies, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're going to do what these movies do, which is the big like finale where we're going to end the fucking story, you know? 
Um, and so putting that investment in Zion, I think, is is interesting. Um, we do have one significant new character here that's worth talking about, which is the Harold Perrineau character, um, who plays the new, um, uh, what do you call it, controller or whatever on the... Um, on the, the Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, he's yeah. Link, who I think is supposed to be like the brother-in-law of, because you have a couple of scenes, you have, um, oh, what's her name? Um, Gina Torres uh, is there. Gina Torres, yeah, Gina Torres, who I think is supposed to be the wife of like Dozer from the first movie, and then Link is her brother, and that's why he is on the Nebuchadnezzar, because Tank and Dozer got fucked up. And now he's taking their place. Um, and I do think Harold Perrineau is an awesome actor, and I like having him here. Yeah, it definitely, it took me about 30 minutes to realize this. Like, oh shit, right, that's uh, that's the dude from uh, Romeo and Juliet. It's Mercutio <laughs> in Romeo plus yeah. Juliet. Because I've seen that movie too many times through, like, the professional hazard of being an English teacher. Um, so yes. it's like, also never, never on and... purpose have I yeah. watched it. But I have ended up seeing that movie about four times, so... To be fair, he might be the best part of that movie. Yeah, it's either it's him and John Leguizamo are the two actors in that movie that like get it. Um, yes. So yes, like that that is not a diss to Harold Perrineau. Like his take on Rikishio is like one of the few I think performances of that movie that actually really worked for me. So yeah, and he was also on Lost. He was on Oz. He was a big actor in this period, um, and I do like him in in here. Even though I I miss I guess the implication is Tank died. Tank seemed like he was going to live at the end of the first Matrix, but or maybe he just had to retire. I'm not sure, but it's a it's a bummer. We you know we don't know how advanced their medical like science or like access to medicine is. Like he got pretty fucked up. I would not be surprised if it's <laughs> like oh he got an infection. Too bad we can't make antibiotics because we're like a hundred people living under the Earth's fucking crust in a like machine dominated hell. Um, yes. So you know it's tragic, Very but that's how it goes. Yeah, but he's I actually really like him in this movie. I think one of the things he like he just has so much personality and I love, you know, he's the guy, you know, behind the screen watching everyone. And there's a bunch of moments where he becomes the audience insert where Neo will do something fucking crazy and then he'll you'll see his reaction shot like fuck that was fucking crazy and I always like those moments. I think he plays those well. Yeah. It always makes me wonder like what 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 does the code look like that's very different when Neo is like flying at Superman speeds through a city that's like, holy shit, look at this fucking code. That's nuts. Yeah. It's pretty great. Um anyway, alright. So you have all of that in, in Zion. What else to say? Like I do want to talk about the rave scene in particular, but anything else in the this stretch of the movie and sort of the just again, the world building is very cool. Yeah, the world building is is really interesting and and it's very necessary, right? Like they need to sort of establish and invest you in the like actual human community for the kind of bigger scale story that they're interested in telling. If there's one change I would make in this section of the movie is like I do think the movie needs to have earlier on like more of like a strong sort of visual like a scene, something that more visually and like kind of immediately gives the audience this feeling of like building dread of the machines approaching Zion. There's this kind of awkwardness of you have a lot of conversations at the beginning of the movie of different groups of characters talking about the machines assembling this army, the army approaching Zion, all that stuff. And there's a sense of like, it's, it's, I wish it wasn't as apps like presented so abstractly just through characters talking about it. Like, I really do think that the movie would have improved by having like a good you know like Saruman and Isengard kind of sequence of us like really seeing that happen 
um, to build like a sense of immediacy around that because it is the driving force of the plot is what is setting everything in motion. It is the thing that is motivating everybody, but it is presented so abstractly until the end of the movie where you actually see the machines like really there um, that I think it, it is one of the things that makes some of the action throughout the movie feel a little bit limper than it needs to because there's not a plot motivated sense of urgency that I think is like really there for the audience. Yeah, I totally understand that. I think that because... And I wonder why that is because, you know, I'm th I have in my head the money shots of like in Revolutions. There's there's scenes where you see like the Sentinels pouring into Zion, yeah. and it is astonishing. And I wonder if there was a sense of like we want to hold back because we're going to do this big money shot. Certainly, they like they had the money to do whatever they wanted with these uh -huh. movies is very clear. It does feel like so. So the structure of this movie, you open with like your cold open, which is Trinity. And it's a very clear like callback to the first movie, but this time it's a scene where she dies at the end, and it is Neo's like prophecy dream sequence to what's going to happen to her, right? Um, and you have that, then you have them on the Nebuchadnezzar getting ready to go link in. You have that quick scene where you meet Link, the Harold Perrin new character, and he has this talk with Morpheus about like you have to trust me, um, which is sort of Morpheus's reintroduction to the movie. And then you have the big scene where they're having the meeting of all the captains that Niobe is running. And Niobe tells you that there's a million sentinels coming down to Zion. And then Morpheus says the great line of like, why would it not make sense? One for every man, woman, and child in Zion. Is that not the logic of a machine? And I'm like, yeah, Lawrence Fishburne, I fucking love uh -huh. you. Um, and then you have a thing with Agent Smith, quick fight, and then you're, you're into the Zion stuff. And I do think there's probably like, maybe in between the Nebuchadnezzar scene and like when you have the meeting with Niobe, there should be like a cutaway to... A machine like I like the idea of machine Saruman <laughs> of like yeah. all of the sentinels like preparing and like like I can even imagine the scene it should be something like there's a couple of sentinels like drilling away and then you kind of pan out and go and there's a million of them right and I guess to be fair to the Wachowskis if you read this in the like extra textual way that is what the last me message of the Osiris short is that's part of the animatrix um, that was released before this movie um, and there's there's always been a criticism that there are a couple of things that feel like they are in the game or in the animatrix that should be in the movie proper, and that probably is one of them. Like there should be like a touch of that in this movie. I think that's very true. Yeah, because I I think it would just be a lot simpler to just have one of the first scenes in the movie be the Nebuchadnezzar is the is the team that sees and like discovers that army or whatever, like something more just yeah. like you know it, it is there there is a certain amount of like bulk to the movie that some of it is like very needed of like expanding its like world building and all of that but i think also some of it of like like you know there's like that subplot between morpheus and niobe that i know that that stuff will continue in the next movie but like some of that like there's like a expansiveness or a sprawl to some of like what the movie is doing with the number of characters and like little subplots and stuff that i think like could be could have been pruned to make it more like efficient and give the movie more space to go deeper into like the stuff that most interests it um and and that's definitely one of those areas where having this like abstract scene of us talking about the threat of these machines is not super compelling compared to just being able to see it deliver that in a way that is like very immediate to our main characters to give us that sense of urgency that then can carry us through the rest of the plot no i totally agree and and it is odd and notable because these movies don't generally have a show versus tell problem right yeah 
Um, it is like this is probably the biggest gap in the whole trilogy on on that regard. I do think what you like, and I do agree. There's some pruning that could happen. I also think it's notable just comparing this to modern movies. This movie's 138 minutes long. The first movie was 136 minutes long. The final movie is like 128. I think it's fa if this were made today, this would be like three and a half hours long. <laughs> like there would be like you know just the bloat of sequels. Like if you make one movie that's kind of good, then the next one has to be 155 minutes. Is how I think it always has to happen now. And occasionally that works. I like the last the new James Bond movie has a, a justified length. The James Bond movie before it did not. Um, so I just you know that's also kind of funny to watch a big Hollywood sequel that is not a full two and a half hours is wild. Yeah, it is definitely, yes, it's, it's like getting movies that 90 minutes to two hour range, like that's a very comfy place for most movies. And if you're getting much bigger than that, you should have a very good reason for why you're getting that much bigger than that. I think that's generally true. Yeah. All right. Um, so you have the big Zion rave scene. You have Morpheus's big speech. You have the rave itself. I think, you know, and I've said this many times, I think it's one of the pivotal scenes of the entire trilogy. I think there's the obvious level of it just, you know, it is a... It is a scene about the things that are being fought for and a statement of humanity. But it is such like a a like bold, interesting, sexual statement of humanity. It is this vision of like like the number of extras on set is wild. It's more than you usually see in something like this. And then obviously digitally extended throughout that whole cavern. And you have all these bodies in rhythmic physical contact. And it is not purely heteronormative. There are a lot of like women and men grinding on each other. Um, and it is intercut with this neo-Trinity sex scene that I would not call like graphic because it does not like cut to any of the like no-no zones that you're not allowed to show in <laughs> movies. But it is like very hot. Like, and I think the whole scene is like, I think, you know, sometimes when people talk about like the female gaze and like sometimes people have the wrong idea of like the female gaze is just women looking at men like men look at women and that's not what it means and I had to teach that to my students like last week when I taught feminism and film theory um, because the male case also is not as simple as just like people being sexualized on screen um, but like in theory about the female gaze it's often talked about that like and this is something talked about also in like women focused pornography or something is like focus on the face and like actual like like sh like showings of pleasure rather than just like the body as like something to be seen and like digested like carnally and i do think there's that is going on in this scene where most mm -hmm. of the focus of the neo trinity sex scene is on bodies in contact and then specifically on their faces and like explicitly you are you have a long hold on Keanu Reeves and then on um um uh, Carrie Ann Moss's face when the characters like orgasm and then yeah. you have a lot of like focuses of like bodily contact in the rave scene and it is just it is extra startling in 2021 when you're like this is a movie with the Warner Brothers logo on it and people fuck in it but also like it's just generally in like American cinema of this level like you know I'm teaching this week I just finished preparing my lecture for it queer theory in film it's a very gay sequence in like a million ways like in how it is showing like the the rave and like and I think the kind of subculture a lot of like its visual imagery is coming out of it is like a really interesting vision of sexuality and like bodily like embodiment of pleasure in cinema um and I can't really think of an analog in a movie of this size made for a mainstream audience of this scale I, I just can't think of another scene like it 
Yeah, because I, I, when I just didn't agree with you, and I think it's a really good take that that it is a scene that like it's very it's it, as you say it's very focused on showing like the effect of the pleasure that the characters are feeling as expressed on their faces, and and there is something to me that is like almost kind of startling in a like modern American movie context of it's not just like a sex scene; it is a sex scene that like. While you don't see any fluids or whatever, it is like showing like this the sexual intercourse to its completion, right? Like it is very, you know, especially if you have already taken sex ed, you'd know exactly what is happening in that scene, whether they are graphically explicitly showing what is occurring, um, like within the body, right? So that that is something that like you you will occasionally get like a sex scene or like an implied sex scene. But, but I think, like, sex scenes showing, like, the completion or, like, the culmination of a sexual act, um, like, whether or not it's shown totally explicitly, like, that's definitely even more um, rare. But it is something that I think, like, is really elegantly done here. And then there's also something, there. there's, like, interesting visual shorthand of when... Um, you know, when, when, when Neo climaxes, that he then immediately has that vision again um, in this, like you know that the moment of clarity post climax right giving him like post coital this vision of a literal his, little death ha, yes ha, ha. I was, that's yeah. where i was going to go like okay. it is the french expression it is the little death which is you know the expression for what the orgasm is and that leading to his vision of um trinity dying that you saw at the beginning of the movie and then they entangle their bodies and there is this very startling what like i think must be an intentional like kind of visual quote and like recontextualization of a very famous shot from the beginning of Ghost in the Shell, um, which is in Ghost in the Shell, it's the major um, in like sort of like sitting in a window well framed against the city. And it's just basically her silhouette um, with her like being very starkly, dramatically alone. And the window well is like surrounded by darkness. So it is this like very sharp point of like rectangular light with the silhouette of the main character in the middle of it. And the majority of the frame being totally in black. Um, and it's a very striking, very famous image from that movie that is meant to sort of give you that sense of like distinct isolation that the major feels. They do a very similar shot here where it is them on the bed framed like it's a window well in the middle of the frame and then a bunch of like black around it. But instead of them being alone, it is them entangled in each other. And then it does this interesting thing where this shot like zooms out and like snap zoom outs like repeatedly to it being this very small frame about the size of the shot in Ghost in the Shell by the end of it. And it is a cool, like, there's obviously a lot of Ghost in the Shell influence in all the Matrix stuff. Um, but that is, like, the most, like, direct, this is, like, them quoting a shot from that movie, but recontextualizing it to be the opposite of what it signified in that film. Where that film, it was this, like, very harsh, brutal social isolation. And here it is this, like, sense of intimate connection that does come with a sense of broader dread of, like, the fear of death like imminent for for trinity in the future um but that shot really stood out to me watching the movie and i think the other side of that shot is it's all of the like holes in their body from the matrix yes. process mm -hmm. is it's this line of because i think you're specifically looking at neo's back and mm -hmm. it's just a big row of along his spine the like different like cord holes um the like ports in his body usb d or whatever they are um and it's it's fascinating i i think it's a it's a beautiful shot and obviously that too is inflected by ghost in the shell which is the the mix of the the robot and the the organic body um 
but yeah, and I think like, you know, you're talking about like showing an actual like sex act to completion. The way that's usually done in Hollywood movies, if it is done at all, is you have the guy on top of the woman thrusts like three times and uh-huh. then it's over. And, and usually you just go, and, and there's no focus at all on like the woman's pleasure or anything like that. And it's not, like it's a full like sex scene where you have the, because I also think the music in that sequence is brilliant and the way it is all cut together and it is using slow motion and all of these like different sort of speed ramping techniques. And so there is this like rhythm to it. There's this like actual like sexual embodied rhythm to the actual edit of the scene, to the way it is cutting and doing these visual matches between Neo and Trinity having sex and then the bodies like kind of grinding against each other in the rave scene. And it is extending this sort of sexual energy throughout the entire society um, and then embodying it in Neo and Trinity Um, and I just think it is a remarkably well put together scene and if you know anything about the Wachowskis later work like it is it is a very clear precursor to stuff they do in Cloud Atlas and in Sense8 and in some of their other stuff um, which I actually think is in general true of The Matrix Reloaded The Matrix Reloaded kind of feels like a sample platter of everything they're going to do for the rest of their career like pretty much every big idea and technical sort of thing they're going to attempt in their later work is indicated in this movie from Speed Racer to Sense8 um, and I think that's an, an interesting thing that's going on in this film as well Yeah, and and one piece in the midst of all of that too is... Um... I think it is very like distinct that Morpheus is not participant in any of this, right? Like there's some brief flirting between him and Niobe um, that is then shot down by, by the, the general character. Locke. Yeah. By Locke. Um, And then, and then Morpheus, you know, goes home and he's like the one person who doesn't get laid basically, right? You have a later shot of him like alone in his apartment. And I think that, that, that like, especially then with the end of the movie, I think it's very intentional that one of the mistakes that Morpheus makes is that he's too chaste or whatever. He's too priestly um, and he's bought too much into the faith and too much into the religion. Um, and that has kind of like removed him from like the sensual embodied experiences of like all the people that he's trying to like motivate and lead. Yeah, he's a he's a great leader who's a little lost in and of himself, you know, because mm-hmm. um, they even give that indication that like the whole thing with Niobe, they they have the line. I think Trinity says he went to see the Oracle and then nothing was the same. Um, and I, I like that little suggestion that like Morpheus changed at some point and that this movie is also kind of interrogating that the things that made us love Morpheus so much in the first movie, they're not bad things about him, but they do blind him to certain things. Like, mm-hmm. he is a deeply good person, um, but he is not someone who is all-knowing, you know? Which he kind of seemed like he maybe was in the first movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's and you know, it is important to the entire arc of this film and the next one, because what is happens on the opposite end of this movie is that Neo is, as we learned, the sixth one. And he is the one who makes a different choice, and he makes a different choice specifically because of Trinity, but that is a stand-in for all that other stuff. Neo is the person with a more holistic like understanding of the things being fought for. It is more embodied for him, and that embodiment is the thing that connects it all back. And I think it is an interesting that, you know, I bet if you time it, they're probably on exact opposite ends of the movie, the architect scene and the Zion rave. And the Zion rave is like, hot and sweaty and embodied and like very carnal and like it is all these like rich like warm colors and the architect scene is intentionally as sterile as it can possibly be 
you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a there's an obviously a big contrast going on there. Although you know, but but then also the architect himself with this like whole Colonel Sanders look. I mean, he's the sexiest <laughs> character in the whole movie. If you ask me. Yes. Um, you know that's because they have. If you didn't, if you weren't around for the time, the big KFC tie-in for Matrix Reloaded was crazy, where they just replaced Colonel Sanders with the architect. Okay, that didn't happen. Um, hope we're not actually tricking any younger listeners here. But yeah, now I'm imagining that, and that would be very funny. Just like it would be the worst sales pitch ever. It's just you have that dude, and he's just talking into the camera in a very monotone voice about like the necessity of chicken to fuel like the cells of the human body. You like silly, stupid ape creatures. You know, he's just apropos of your hunger. We have made a bucket of twelve pieces of chicken. The flawed construction of the human organism demands that it is fueled periodically with nutrients. Ergo, we are going to give you some fried chicken. Man, why isn't marketing ever as fun as we want it to be, Sean? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because it would fail, but yeah. also, you know, put us in charge of a marketing agency for a year. We will drive it into the ground, but we will have fun along the way. It would be a great commercial. Great commercial. All right. I also do love there's this little scene between Neo and the counselor um, when Neo wakes up in the middle of the night and he walks out um, and you have him talking to the counselor and they go down into the engineering deck and there's the whole and then this kind of kicks off the whole like free will versus choice debate in the movie um, where they're talking about um, that that Zion is also reliant upon machines and and says we're kind of plugged in and Neo says nah that's you know that's stupid we could turn off these machines and the counselor says well we could but we'd all die basically um, and is sort of questioning Neo's absolutist view of free will here, which I think is interesting. Yeah, and it is like Neo does come across as a bit of an idiot. <laughs> that scene, yes. I mean, it, like intentionally, but it is very funny. It's just like, what are you talking about? We could just we control these machines. We could just turn these machines off. And you just get this like the council is like, oh, this fucking blockhead. Like you really not? It's like, yeah, we could turn them off. We could also all die. Um, but yes, uh, that I love that scene because it does set up. Um, as I said, like kind of at the top of this discussion, there is this like repeated encounter that Neo has with these different figures that then kind of talk to him about the nature of like free will and choice. Um, and the counselors, I think, is one of my favorites because he has this great line where you know Neo is like says like, "Was well, is, is, so you're saying that like we're as reliant as the machines as the machines are reliant on us? Is that your point?" And he says like. I don't have a point, you know, old men don't make points. Um, And there's something about, there's something very elegant about this sort of, it doesn't need to have a point. Like he's just making an observation, right? That, that, and so much of the movie is about like, what is the point of anything, right? Like what is the why, the purpose that, that Smith is seeking so much and, and repeated, Neo is repeatedly told that it's like, it doesn't matter what you're doing or whether you have control over what you're doing because you don't, but it's like, what is important is the why. And that is both what the Merovingian and the Oracle tells him. And I like that that's sort of seated in this slightly sort of like Socrates esque way with the counselor at the beginning of this movie of him saying he, he doesn't have a point. He's just making an observation about how, like how much are they actually in control? And then conversely, how much are the machines in control? Because they too are reliant on the humans to continue being whatever the fuck the machines want to be. 
Absolutely. And I think I just love the the way that actor plays it. Mm-hmm. I think there is a very Socrates-esque. Like you could imagine if someone were making a Socrates biopic, you would cast that guy or something, right? Mm-hmm. There's a very yeah. like that kind of feeling to it of the, yeah, of like the teacher figure. Um, I also love his line. I figured that I slept for the first 11 years of my life. Now I'm making up for it. The whole idea that he doesn't sleep because he's in the real world now. Um, that's That's a beautiful little line. And just again, seeing more of Zion. Um, And I also think this scene is a good corrective to a danger of a plot like The Matrix in like being complete like techno nihilism, right? Of like, Mm -hmm. there would be a danger, I think, from the first movie of just being like technology is evil and bad. And that's not the point of any of The Matrix movies, really, right? Because the technology is just a tool and there are like bigger systems going on and the system is actually what's wrong not the technology um is obviously a, a major point of the entire trilogy yeah there's also there's a point that's made in that scene as well about like about like the willful ignorance of people right that like you know these are the machines that they're on top of are the things that are keeping everybody alive and the vast majority of the people that live in that society have no idea how any of that shit works Mm -hmm. they don't care um how it works they care that it works right um and that's another like what separates neo or what separates like the hero of this story is is the search for like the reason why not just the what is it or that but it's like why is this thing like how does it function like what is like the deeper purpose and mechanisms underlying everything and that is also set up in this like early conversation yeah absolutely it's all good stuff i like this one last note about the zion section this is a character we will come to know much better in the next movie uh played by nathaniel lees is captain mifune um I, they call him Mifune, but I do love that there's a character named after Toshiro Mifune in this movie. Yes. And in the next movie, he is one of the best characters in the whole trilogy. He has, like, two scenes here, but I wanted to call that out because I do. That's that's one of their, like, name references that's very obvious, but I do love it. Yes. Yeah. As soon as I did not remember that at all. And then as soon as they said it, I'm like, okay, yep, I, I, I have learned who that person is since uh, the last time I watched this movie. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. Last time, I know, like when we were kids, we would have had no idea because we hadn't seen like a bunch of Kurosawa films. So anyway, that's cool. All right. Um, then the next stretch of the movie is uh, Neo going to meet the Oracle. Uh, I do love in this stretch of the movie you, well, first off, you meet Seraph, And I do like Seraph. Yes. Seraph is cool. Um, like, this is what I mean about the action in this movie. Seraph and Neo's fight is like the sixth most complicated fight scene in the movie. And it would be, like, the best martial arts scene in most, like, Hollywood action movies, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, I think it's the best action scene in this movie. Because it's the one that has, like, the most narrative and, like, character momentum behind it. And I like that it's, like, it's it's way more grounded. It's more in the style of the original Matrix movie. They don't kind of go as over the top with it. Um, and it also is nice to have, like, um, Colin Cho is, like, who plays Seraph is a actual martial artist who's been in a lot of Hong Kong action movies, yeah. most notably being Donnie Yen's, uh, well, Wilson Yip's Flashpoint starring Donnie Yen. Um, and, and, like, his physicality is so powerful in that scene because it's like he really knows what the fuck he's doing. Oh, it's great. I mean, it's it's the one that feels the most like something out of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is mm-hmm. what the choreographer on these movies also worked on that movie um and it's just like the set and the choreography of it all but it's phenomenal like it's 
you know, there's this one shot. I mean, the whole thing is is just shot so well and like it's so well choreographed. But there's this one shot that starts down on their feet and showing like their feet moving against each other. And in most Hollywood movies, I would kind of roll my eyes at that and go, "Oh, they're doing the shot down on the feet because they don't actually have actors who can do this." Because you know, so we're doing like we're subdividing the body. So that's like what happens with like modern musicals and dancing too. Uh-huh. Also, um, but then what that shot does is it starts on their feet and then it pans up and shows their full bodies. That is a fucking cool shot to do it that way. Because, like, that is, like, that's kind of like a, this is real, assholes. Like, look at mm-hmm. this. This is so cool. Um, and it's, no, it's a great it's a great little fight scene. And, um, you know, I love that it's just, it's almost like a throwaway in the movie. But it's just so good. It's, you know, that kind of stuff is awesome. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's just this kind of, like, classic Hong Kong martial arts kind of, like, you have to fight this dude in order to go you know talk to the person he's trying to talk to so there's not any actual animosity between neo and seraph um it's a test for him um yes. but it's yeah it's just like so perfectly shot like perfectly constructed incredibly well performed um yeah like it's just like a little gem of a very cool martial arts scene in this movie um that like has always stood out to me like i've always really loved sarah's role in this movie and that's like i didn't realize how much until i also realized like this is the dude who like i keep on saying flashpoint but the eight minute action scene at the end of that movie is like legitimately one of the best martial arts scenes i've ever seen so if particularly if you want to see something that is very like mma inflected um people should just watch that scene because it's fucking great and this dude's amazing in it mm-hmm. yeah all right um let's see so I was just Googling Flashpoint and all I can find are about the fucking Justice League shit. Okay. Yeah. Google Never Flashpoint mind. and then put, put in that Yen. same search Donnie Yen and yeah, then you will find the movie uh, you need. <laughs> I'm like getting the Flashpoint paradox is the new Flash, a Flashpoint movie, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, I want I want the good thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. I want anyway. the thing where Donnie Yen suplexes a man through a fucking table, please. Thank you. Oh my God. All right. Anywho. Um, yeah. So... Uh, let's see. Then we have the scene with the Oracle. In between there, the way they get to the Oracles, they introduce the idea of the back doors in the Matrix. Mm-hmm. I do love stuff like that. I, one of the things I like in this movie is it sort of like makes the Matrix itself more malleable through the stuff like the back doors and all of that. And there's some of that stuff that I think is cool. Yes, yeah. It's just like extra little world building that makes sense of like reminding you that the matrix is a sort of constructed reality by the machine so it doesn't have to obey the rules of the actual world you can have a little weird secret hallway that just connects to anywhere else in the world Mm -hmm. all right and then we have this movie's big scene with the oracle um played once again by gloria foster gloria foster i forgot her last name for a second um and this one is kind of even meatier and bigger than Mm -hmm. the scene in the first movie there's a lot going on in this scene it obviously plays off of like when you watch it knowing the architect scene at the end it plays very differently um but it's a really interesting scene yeah this is where like they they confirm definitively that the oracle is a program and this is where like one thing i like about the matrix Reloaded revolutions is is one of the ways they expand the world building is like definitively confirming that the agents are not the only like conscious entities that exist within the matrix that are non-human right and so the oracle and seraph uh the key maker merovingian and his like lackeys uh persephone and then of course the architect at the end like all of these are programs who we like read as being conscious independent entities although how much of that is like true to their actual existence is like supposed to be up to debate um but like that is a dynamic that i really love of of 
that you have assumed the Oracle is, was maybe a human in the first movie or like was some sort of weird existence you don't know. And the fact that she's like definitively a part of the Matrix created by the machines, um, like is one of those ways where it is like breaking up things that you sort of assume about the first movie and complicating them where... Um, as Neo is in the scene, you're not sure how much you can trust the Oracle and what she's doing or what she's saying or what her like real objectives are. Exactly. You know, this is this is something I love about both this and the next movie is sort of fleshing out the machine world as its own culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't see a ton of it by design, but you get these glimpses into it and you realize that like the machines and the programs and however you want to define it, they are their own society and their own world and they have their own rules and they have their own like criminals and runaways. The way that the, the Oracle just explains it to us is that there are programs everywhere and there are some that go rogue. And then I do love this explanation that like all of the monsters that we have myths about like ghosts and angels and vampires and aliens are the system assimilating something that's doing what it's not supposed to. And so there are all these like runaway programs that are supposed to go return to the source that are just out running around the matrix. And there's just suggestions like that, that the Merovingian is our clearest window into it. And even then that's still at like an arm's length remove. And I just love that the movie suggests all of that. And then when you get like, there's that one moment where the architect cracks at the end and he says, there are levels of survival we are prepared to accept. And he looks scared. Mm -hmm. And you get a little of this of this in matrix revolutions when we get to machine city, but that, there is an entire other movie to be made that we probably couldn't make because we can't imagine how they would think and move and act. But there's a whole alternate trilogy of the machines doing their shit. And yeah. it's and I like that it also keeps it in a remove where we clearly couldn't fully understand them, you know? Yeah, that like the only way we can understand them is like as embodied as human personalities that you interact with directly in the Matrix. Um, but, but like how that relates to their existence and how they perceive themselves in their world um, is, yeah, it's a it's like a fascinating thing to try to comprehend um, that it's a much more elaborate version of like those little morsels you got in the first movie from Agent Smith of like him detesting humans and, and the smell of them and all that kind of stuff. And, and there is like a very powerful notion of that the machines are not perfect, right? They're far from perfect. Like they create programs that then are outdated, but those programs seem to like have a sense of sort of like self-worth and self-value enough that they don't want to be deleted or destroyed. So they escape into the matrix as these weird sort of like rogue elements that are also hiding, you know, from the the agents, right? Like when the in the big freeway scene, the agents are more interested in getting the keymaker and not in getting Trinity and Morpheus as like a whatever. They want to retrieve the keymaker as a sort of like rogue programmed entity. Um, and all of that stuff, it's so evocative and suggests this much larger world um, that is so interesting. And as you say, it's something you could never explore fully because if you tr- even if you tried to, it would be disappointing because you'd have to collapse this like sort of like fascinating infinite range of possibilities about how that world would work into something that could be easily understood by human brains. Um, and so I like the I think it's the perfect amount of like evocative elements and then distance from it to let you kind of fill in the rest of the gaps yourself. Yes, absolutely. Um, and revolutions will do this as well. And it is something I generally like about the direction of the sequels is that, the Wachowski's vision of how to end the Matrix story and resolve the war 
is not destroying all the machines. I think that is a much more interesting direction for the entire story and just like little spoiler for revolutions like that's not this revolutions is not neo and trinity go to the machine city with a nuke like to destroy it all or something it's a very different vision of how this will work because the other revelation of the movie is that neo is also a program like that's Mm -hmm. like or like partially a program like that is part of something that i actually think a lot of people don't realize the architect is saying that but it's very important to the structure of the movies um and i love all of that which but also like then there is the oracle who is on one level, seemingly the like kindest and most trustworthy character in the movie, and now we have this, you know, Neo has to ask, like, can I trust you? And her answers are obviously very elliptic and all of that. Um, and it's very and then she introduces this idea of the choice having already be, been made, and what is important is having to understand the choice. Um, and I think all of the things that are being introduced here are so thorny. Um and, and it feels like the, the best version of the Oracle where, on one level, she does give Neo, like, literal instructions, like, go meet the Merovingian here. But what the purpose of that meeting is, is, like, planting these seeds in his head that are going to take two movies to figure out. Yeah, and and it's interesting to me that, you know, so we the last episode of the podcast we recorded was the episode 401 where we did the interview thing. And I, one of the questions I asked you was, do you believe in free will? Not remembering at all that that is that like entirely about, yeah. what this movie is about. Because what the Oracle says here about, like, you didn't come here to make the choice. You've already made it. Um, you're here to try to understand why you made it. And, like, the Merovingian, like, kind of goes into more detail about what the Oracle talks about here. Which is, like, the one of the notions of that you don't have free will is that, like the conscious entity that you understand yourself to be like the the personality the persona whatever that you sort of like think of as yourself that we like to think of of that thing as being in the driver's seat that is like i am sean chapman i am like a conscious thoughtful entity and i have the ability to choose what it is i do that this thought i'm having is is the driver's seat um, but the argument for that you don't have free will is that that conscious entity is not the thing that's in the driver's seat. It is a sort of projection by the actual thing that's in the driver's seat, which is this sort of a more unconscious, unconscious part of your brain that you are receiving all the input of like external stimuli that you can um, or internal stimuli, however you would want to frame things like hunger, sexual desire, things like that. But then also like the culture you're built up in, uh, like the things that you are taught, the systems you live within, all these things create something within you that then in response to certain stimuli is going to create certain decisions that then you as the conscious entity are not actually making. You're just responding to the choices that your body or this other like part of your brain has already chosen to make. And you have to be aware that that is happening and try to explore the reasons why is like the best that you can do. Um, that's sort of part of the, the concept that you don't have free will. That part of you has already made the choice. And that part is not the thinking part, is like the emotion part, is the core part of you. Um, and your conscious entity is just like a thing that is along the ride of this more emotional, intuitive part of your like being that is just responding to external stimuli the same way that a single-celled organism responds to external stimuli in its environment and is not consciously aware of why it is choosing to eat or attack certain things. It's just doing it. Um, And so some of those are like the ideas that the Oracle and then the Merovingian scene is playing with, like 
putting those ideas in this sort of like shell of like programming and things like that to sort of translate it into the matrix's language and this is where i find the structure of the two sequels so complementary and interesting because what reloaded is doing is it is going through the entire arc of the one as it's programmed to happen we finish the story that is laid out in the first matrix movie in the second movie like all of the prophecy all of that side of the movie that is like laid out that I think if you were to ask someone at the end of Matrix 1, how will this story eventually end? Well, it'll have to end with the prophecy of the one being fulfilled, right? Mm -hmm. And it is, but it's fulfilled at the end of the second movie, not the third. And so the second movie is about moving through the entire sort of game as it's laid out to be played and realizing that that whole side of it is kind of besides the point because it is predetermined that all of those steps along the way all of the action they have to go through all of the things that are going to happen there are sort of not the characters making conscious choices it's doing what they're reacting to even up to the big quote-unquote choice at the end of the movie which is that the architect gives neo two doors and i don't think the camera even shows us the other door because it is such an obvious like Neo's not going to walk through the door where Trinity dies. And the architect yeah. knows that, and he knows it, and there's no, like... And so it very much comes back to what the Oracle is saying about the choice being less important than the understanding of it. And then what we are left with at the end of this movie is a third film where we've moved past those pre-programmed choices, and we are now on a path that is more difficult and contingent and not predetermined. Um and that's sort of the and that's why the last movie is called Revolutions. Like there's a very clear arc going on here that I think is really interesting and subversive in interesting ways because it is actualizing some of its thoughts on free will. Yeah. I think one of the things that then does become thorny about it, this is something we talked about in, in my question to you on the last podcast about whether or not free will exists, is that if you're trying to dramatize this element, there's a difficulty with the answer to the question whether or not you have free will is irrelevant, right? Because if you don't have free will, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and if you do have free will, then good for you. Um, but it is definitely like a thing of where if you're trying to dramatize this idea of like you're being programmed, you're just following like the steps that are laid for you that you don't have the conscious choice and you're not making conscious choices and you're just responding to the stimuli in your environment. Like it is definitely like a very anti-narrative concept um, because, like, narratives are fundamentally about characters making choices, right? Or, like, that's traditionally what you think your stories are about, is characters being presented with some sort of dilemma, some sort of choice, or, like, multiple choices over the course of the story. You know, it's like the hero refusing the call to action and then having to ultimately make it. Those sorts of things are where we traditionally find meaning within stories. And, and The Matrix Reloaded is, like, I don't think it's, like, holistically rejecting that, because, well, as you say, there is a third movie where presumably they posit that to some extent, perhaps there is some level of free choice. Well, I'll have to visit that when we watch the third movie because I don't remember. I, I think it's thorny, but I think the point is, I, I think it's about reframing the question. And I think that's what the movie does interestingly with the Oracle scene is the choice becomes less important than the understanding of like the things underneath it. And I think that's why, like, I mean... A lot of Reloaded is about characters fighting against things that they will accept in the third movie. Like, Neo gets the hand of Smith in the chest to assimilate him 53 minutes into this movie. 
And that is ultimately the end point of the Matrix trilogy is him letting it happen. You know, he is fighting this whole movie against Trinity dying. Trinity fucking dies in Revolutions and it is brutal and like uncompromising. Like that's where I think there's this like, I think the movie's relationship to it is thorny, but in productive and interesting ways, I guess is my view on it. Yeah, I think the difficulty I have with it is within this movie, once you start introducing these concepts, it then makes a lot of the action scenes not that interesting to me, right? Because mm. because the action scenes don't have anything to do with this, really. Like, they don't... Because I don't know how you would make an action scene without, like... I did, like I think you I think you could conceptualize it, but it would be it would have to basically be farcical. And I think there are elements of farce, like I think very much intentionally in the Merovingian. I don't know how intentional the elements of farce of the Burly Brawl are, um, but but it doesn't lean into it all the way. And so I think this is where the movie both in, starts to like interest me the most because I find these ideas very interesting. But then also it starts kind of laying its own path of like sort of disinterest for me in. Like, I don't see what the, like, action scene that immediately follows this, and then, like, the very big action scene on the freeway, how those really connect to any of these concepts at all. Um, and, and it's because, like, they've decided to tackle themes that I think are much more difficult to try to actualize through strongly motivated character action, which is exciting and big action sequences, compared to the first movie, where its themes are very easy to make very compelling and expressed through big interesting well choreographed action scenes and, and this is where i think like the movie starts to me run into some difficulties in how do you fuse this with the like aesthetic stylings of matrix action for me i don't think the movie succeeds in that question that's a really interesting point and way of framing it and it makes me really curious sean how you are going to react to seeing revolutions again because revolutions and i think one of the things that people have always pushed back on with that movie is it is very bleak and it is very kind of overwhelming. But I do think that movie's vision of action is much more like consciously married to the themes of the movie in that all of the action, and especially the stuff that happens in Zion in Revolutions, is about fighting against something inevitable and like fighting against something that cannot actually be stopped. It's about fighting against death. Mm -hmm. And like, it's, it's, I, and I think that's why it works, is I think it's a very actualized version of that. I also understand why it's been off-putting to some people, because it is a bleak movie. Um, but yeah, there it's... Yeah, because you're right. I also... But it's an interesting question, because I don't know what the answer to that is. This isn't one where I can say, like... Like, with the problem with the Sentinels at the beginning of the movie, we can say, oh, there just should have been a scene where we see the Sentinels, right? I don't know what the answer is to, we're going to make a movie about free will, and then we need to have action scenes. Like... That's really hard to try to figure out what the what the alternative is, you know. Yeah, I get. I think like I think you could do it, um, but it would. But I don't know if like the Matrix actually has like the cinematic language to do it. I guess right. Um, like with the style of action they do, it just doesn't. It it just doesn't have like the space to do it within its own film. Um, so it, it's it's something of where I think like the movie is biting off more than it can really chew, which is admirable, but also then there's like 40 minutes of action scenes that like to me i just don't find that that ultimately compelling like i find compelling some of it in an abstract sense but in like my investment in the story being told i don't find it that interesting yeah so after the oracle scene we have the smith and neo scene um which is agent smith's biggest scene in this movie 
um, where he gives the whole speech about them having a connection now that but after the last movie Smith was supposed to go back to the mainframe but instead he stayed in the matrix he's broken the rules he's disobeyed he says because of you I am no longer an agent of this system because of you I've changed I'm unplugged and so what they set up and I love this side of the movie what they set up is Smith as like dark neo he is mm -hmm. also a rebel he is also someone who has broken free of the system but he has done it in a like completely different way he's like a dark mirror almost of like the boy in zion that neo freed because neo also freed smith but in freeing smith he becomes like the opposite of neo these two beings who have broken free from the system uh and then smith brings in the idea of purpose and in his search for purpose he is just assimilating everything and then of course that leads us into the burly brawl well, and in fact, I would actually push back against some of what you just said, Jonathan, because Neo hasn't broken free from the system. He is a part of the system. That's true, like that's true, yeah. He, he is fulfilling his role in the system more right now than he was, arguably, when he was just Mr. Anderson in his office. That's a good Agent point. Smith is the actual person who has broken free. He yes. is the actual rogue chaotic element, um, which is always like the thing that, like, when I talked about in the last podcast of, like, I'm really excited to revisit where this character goes in the future movies because because of this dynamic. Because in the first movie, you are led to believe, because of the story that movie tells, that Neo has broken free, when in actuality the thing he has done in, done in killing Agent Smith is freed him and created something that, like, you in this movie, you very much don't know what the fuck he is. Um, but he is he is more free than any other character that we have encountered so far. Yes, and I think that's a good... Yeah, because I guess there's... Cause, and this is where I think Reloaded is so interesting in challenging the audience, is Neo is free in the sense that he's broken out of the Matrix, and that's what I meant. Like, Neo is... He has... He's no longer plugged into the Matrix. He's no longer... He can fly. He is free in those senses. But, of course, you're right. We've already learned in the Oracle scene just now, and we're going to learn very clearly in the Architect scene, that Neo is playing to a script that was laid out to him, Right. Like yeah. all of that is very on rails, and and so he is a he. I think Neo probably thinks he has broken out, but he hasn't. Neo thinks he has free will, but he doesn't. And Smith is the one who is embodying actual freedom, and it is this like, this is where it gets I think a little psychoanalytic in his like expansion of the ego to all these other bodies. Like his freedom is this like untrammeled ego that just feeds and consumes and goes and takes over you know yeah and that and that his freedom also seems to have driven him insane right because this is where he gives his like purpose speech um that is purpose that creates us purpose that connects us blah blah blah, blah, blah um and all of that but of course like by having been freed he doesn't really have a purpose right it's like the the best he can come up with is um we're here to take from you what you try to take from us purpose like his the best thing he can come up with to do is like petty revenge basically mm -hmm. because he has no he's free from the system like what is he to do um and 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 he's like lost i think is like where that character is and i find that very interesting um, and as you say like he is he is sort of monstrously expanding himself to consume the rest of of the matrix because he is freed from like the boundaries that have been put on him in a much more sort of like frightening way than you could arguably say was for neo with his ability to like do superman shit um what agent smith is doing is terrifying like he's able to take over people's consciousness and exist in the real world in some way um which you only get little bits and pieces of in this movie yeah it's it's 
I mean, most of this is going to be paid off in the next movie, so I don't even know how much we should talk about it. But like, it's it's where you do see that these two movies were made together because mm-hmm. like all of the ideas are being laid out. Like I said, we're not even an hour into part two. And Neo is confronted with the thing that he will eventually accept at the end of part three, which is Smith putting the hand in and trying to assimilate him. Assimilate. Nope, that's not what I meant to say. Assimilate. There's there's some psychoanalysis for you. Yep. I mean, kind of. I guess he is kind of inseminating him. Yes. But I meant to say assimilate. And then, of course, you have Smith starting this refrain of saying, it is inevitable. And he's saying that over and over again. And to a degree, he's right. Because if we want to put it in the Oracle's terms, Neo has sort of already made the choice. It's just going to take two movies for him to understand it. My biggest laugh in this entire movie is when there's the other agent who comes in and is like, oh, fuck, this Smith guy. And then Smith comes up and assimilates him. And then the agent, the new agent Smith, looks at the other agent Smith and says, you... And Smith says, yes, me. Me, me, me. Me. And then the other guy goes, me too. (laughs) It's so... Hugo Weaving is having so much fun. And I fucking love him. I love that beautiful man. He's great. (laughs) Yes, I love how he... You know, he's got the big sunglasses covering his eyes. And somehow you can... Like, you can still see how hard that man's eyebrows are working. On his with his acting, right? Like you can yes. barely even see the eyebrows. It's still, it's like the amount of acting those eyebrows are doing is just incredible. Oh, it's so it's so good. Um, yeah, love Agent Smith, love all of that. And then we do get the Burly Brawl, one of the only action sequences in movie history that just has a fully like known, agreed upon moniker because that's what they called it through all of production. That's the song on the soundtrack. It's just like because. If you go through like the production history of this movie, this was the biggest. The Wachowskis came up with an, a crazy idea, and then like effects artists and everyone working on the movie had to figure out how do you do that because at the time that they started making Matrix Reloaded, this idea was impossible. And by the end, they had figured it out. And I do think this action sequence, I I love it. I think it's phenomenal. I think it's one of the best in all the trilogy. I also think it is technically and technologically worth studying because it is creating a bunch of ideas that are now like kind of commonplace, but this is the first place you kind of see them in movie history. Yeah, I think I'm going to say something that might be controversial here. I don't actually like this fight that much. Um, I, I respect the technological <sighs> innovation, but I don't, there's a lot of stuff. I, I like some of the opening of this fight, and I think once this fight starts getting crazy... I, I lose sense of what the intention of the fight scene is. I don't know how dumb the fight scene is supposed to be because it is phenomenally stupid. It is, like, unbelievably stupid. It's so fun. It's so fun. It's so cool. But to, like... This is part of my, like, to what end? Like, what is this fight scene doing? Because there is no end. That's, like, the point. His only actual... The, the fighting is completely useless and stupid that Neo yep. is doing. His only actual answer is to run away. And in the end, in the next movie, the actual answer is... You can't fight this thing. But that, to me... It's just not a good motivation for, like, the amount of, of like, stuff that goes into this fight. And, then like, really, I think my problem with this fight is that I think, like... While, like, the technical innovation is really admirable, for me, it doesn't work. Um, there are like two very separate realities that exist in this fight. There's a reality where you have actors and there's a reality where everything is digital and they are completely different. 
in style and look in choreography in the way that they're shot right and so again this is like it is a very innovative fight in terms of what it is trying to do with technology but part of the thing is that this is where they sort of innovate on the idea of having like the virtual camera that can shoot like virtual things that look to a certain extent like live action certainly like more than anything had been before the problem is that a virtual camera is not bound by the physical laws and rules that an actual physical camera is but you are still shooting most of the fight with the physical camera. There are only certain sequences that are done with the digital camera. And the digital camera looks completely unlike the physical one in, in every single way. And it completely takes me out of the fight, especially when it is contrasted with this really elegant, really beautifully put together fight of, um, of Neo fighting Seraf. And it's so much more interesting to me than like this very messy all over the place thing they do with the burly brawl that feels like the Wachowskis wanting to do an anime fight scene, but they can't do an anime fight scene because they're fighting, shooting a live action movie. And I just wish it was just like a 2D animated sequence or something because it could have executed on the ideas it wanted to do. Instead, you get this like weird mess of like trying to throw everything at the wall to try to communicate the idea of Neo with superpowers fighting an army of Agent Smiths. And it's like so desperate to communicate that idea that I don't think it ever really does it effectively. Oh, I just, I profoundly disagree here. Um, I think what it's doing is fascinating. And I think there is, there, look, there's obviously, and it's going to get worse as time goes by, the CGI is very clearly CGI and there's no getting around that. And it's 2003 and, and it's going to look more dated with time, obviously. Um, and it, you know, it probably did not look completely real when it came I'm out. I'm going to go on the record. I've always thought the Burley Brawl was a dumb, bad fight. So this is not a new opinion. Okay. I have always thought this about this. Yeah. Um, but you get what I'm saying that like, yes. you know, it's, it's, there is a little bit of a shock of like, this is older CGI. Um, but I, I think the mix between the physical camera and the... We need to be careful here. It's not a digital camera. It's a virtual camera. It's a virtual camera, camera yes. Yeah, the, I the mean, it's digital a digital camera in the sense that, like, it I, is, yeah. but we have another term that we use that for, so yes. Yes. It's a virtual Digital camera. camera is just a physical camera that shoots to digital stock, not film stock. Um, virtual camera meaning it is not a real thing. It is a thing in a virtual space. And I think, I think this is a really well-boarded and choreographed fight in where it chooses to take those moments and those leaps into the virtual space um, and how that communicates. That, that to me, like, no, I, I, I guess I see what you mean about they don't look the same, but what they're communicating are different things. Like when Neo is going, it's, it's when Neo does the most like super powered stuff in this fight and the most sort of, it, it's literally breaking out of, you're like, you're building up through things that you can do with a physical camera in physical space. And then you are exploding into like things that are so crazy to show that you have to have a virtual camera in this space to do it. Like him doing the pull and running around and kicking like the 50 Agent Smiths that are coming at him. And I love that shot. Um, and there's just a lot of things like that that I just, there's, there's a technical side of it that I find very virtuosic. And I do think it's put together really interestingly and i do think the the wachowskis in especially in this period of their work are like really invested in figuring out can you take some of these anime visual codes and adapt them to live action and maybe the answer is no maybe the answer is maybe um speed racer certainly is like very invested in this and goes for sort of a full virtual camera sort of thing um but i just find it very compelling and i i do find it to be an interesting fight sequence and you know um and I think it is an interesting blend of the old and new in that, like, sometimes it's very clearly Hugo Weaving, 
but then a lot of the bodies are not him they're stunt doubles and if you look closely especially on the 4k blu-ray you can tell that like uh-huh. Hugo Weaving is fairly easy to double for because of the haircut and the suit and the the sunglasses, but you can still tell it's a lot of people dressed up like Hugo Weaving, and then it is a CGI double of Hugo Weaving, and there are sort of the two Keanu Reeves in the sequence. Um, you know, there I I find it interesting, and I and I find it compelling as a fight in the movie too because I do think it's an interesting setup to some of what the next movie is going to pay off. But I I understand where you're coming from. I guess this is just one where I I kind of diametrically disagree. Yeah, I just think, I think one of, like, the lessons that filmmakers learn is that, like, even if you have a virtual camera, if the most of your, if your movie's not shot entirely with a virtual camera and is this, like, not trying to use that language consistently, like, I think you need to have the virtual camera obey the laws that a physical camera would do but you can still do that and still get shots that you would never be able to get with an actual physical camera but there's certain laws of like like physical laws of momentum and things like that that a physical camera will obey to a certain degree that like a virtual camera needs to replicate to a certain extent or to me it just like completely takes me out of it and it and it just lose the sense of like the story i lose the sense of the characters i lose the sense of like the reality of the film and i think it's like too haphazard with how it switches between those two styles and the virtual style to me is so utterly unconvincing that i would much rather have what might be like a a, a much more pared down action scene but was one that you just did in the style of previous matrix one-to-one action scenes and it's like is does it is it pretty obvious that this is a bunch of like stunt doubles wearing glasses in like black suits? Yes, but to me, I find that more honest and more like true to the rest of the style of the movie than all of a sudden here's this like completely ridiculous shot where like all sense of physics and momentum and weight and cloth and skin and all that stuff just becomes so completely artificial. Um, and there are a couple of shots in the freeway scene with with Morpheus that do the same thing. And it's just like, to me, I, I, it just takes me out of the movie completely. Um, and I, I wish that they just went for a more consistent style. Either having the entire fight just be completely ridiculous virtual stuff might have actually worked better than switching between it with those shots. Like, it, it just, to me, there's so much dissonance in the aesthetic of what they're going for that it just doesn't work. I guess I just, I also disagree that there's no sense of momentum to some of that. I think... I think the camera feels very embodied in a lot of what it's doing. And this is not the only scene that does virtual camera work. There's also um, some of the stuff at the beginning with Trinity's assault on the complex. You have several, like, big shots in the movie that do, like, basically big sweeping camera movements that couldn't possibly be done in reality. But I do think our... I, I don't agree that it, like, just completely obeyed, like disobeys laws of momentum and physics. I think there's some stuff... And I mean... Partially if it is, it's also happening in the Matrix, so that's kind of the point. But, like, I don't know. I, I'm okay with that. I, I, I don't have those same problems with it. And this yeah. is weird because I'm very, very rarely the person ever arguing for, like, CGI effects. But um, I, I, I think it's interesting, and I think it is, like, an interesting precursor to stuff like um, Gravity, the Alfonso Cuaron movie, or um, which, which is probably the most notable movie that's won Best Cinematography despite not really being shot with a camera. Um, it, it's, it's an interesting like early version of some of that stuff. And, and maybe it's more of a curio, but I don't feel that way. So, Yeah, it just, it's never really worked for me. And part of it is also there is a very like slapsticky element to it that like has always 
weird to me because it doesn't exist anywhere else in the Matrix. Um, like the most the most slapstick thing being there's a shot where Neo throws one Agent Smith into a bunch of other Agent Smiths and a bowling pin sound effect plays. It's fucking great. Um, I love it. And it's it is funny, but it's also just like it's weird. Like I it's I just like am not entirely sure what is being expressed in the scene to me. I, I just had kind of left a little bit fuddled by it. Well, you want to move on and talk about the Merovingian making a yes. random woman come with a piece of chocolate cake? Yes, things that are totally explicable. Let's move to that. Yes. Well, Sean, tell me what you think of the uh, our friend, the Merovingian. I love this scene. Uh, I love this whole sequence of the movie of like, this is where I, I, like, I think this whole sequence is like very intentionally farcical. Um, like this is where I think the play on like free will and choice is the most interesting to me. Because the Merovingian doesn't actually tell us anything new. All he's doing is telling us in more detail the exact same things the Oracle was saying. Like, to the point where he almost quotes her directly about, like, the, like, it's the why. Like, the why is what separates us. And he phrases it almost identically to the Oracle, and he's going on about all that shit. But then, of course, as the sequence fully plays out, you then have him being betrayed by Persephone, his wife, and there's a whole bunch of, like, Greek mythology shit that we don't need to get into, but there's all that shit's there, too. Um, and... Um, her sort of betraying him and then him coming in and being surprised and her giving the same line about like cause and effect, it's causality, right? All that shit. And him being like, ah. Oh. And, and it's this hilarious thing of where like, because nobody has free will, because like all these things are just like this series of dominoes that you start with the Merovingian thinking that he knows everything that's going on, but he's just another domino in the series of dominoes that he is describing. He And he is not any more aware of it, actually, than anybody else is. There's something about, like, the broad comedy of that whole sequence that really plays very well to me and how it is, like, dramatizing something very effectively about what, like, the themes about free will that the movie is exploring. Yes, I think that's very true because the Merovingian, who's played by this guy Lambert Wilson, who I don't think I've ever seen in anything else. I do love him here. I think he's, I mean, because basically the the assignment is crazy cartoon Frenchman. Like it is so yes. over the top and silly, um, and I love it. And his whole argument during the restaurant scene is that it's not about free will; it's about power, right? And he is completely unaware that him being a fucking dick, crazy cartoon Frenchman is the thing that is causing Persephone over here to want to rebel and fuck him over. And so he doesn't actually have the power he thinks he has. And that is, as you say, sort of the arc of that sequence, which culminates with they're in the main, like, room of that mansion where they're going to have the big action scene. And the Merovingian storms in through the door. And his reaction there is so goddamn funny. Of like, but Persephone, how could you do this to me? Like, it's so, he's yeah. so over the top, just goes into full, like, cartoon almost like fucking Pepe Le Pew mode. Yeah, um, or it's like, it's very like Inspector Clouseau to me in that yes. scene of just like the stumbling over his own fake French accent. Yeah. It's so great. Um, yeah, it's a really, I mean, it is all told probably the most idiosyncratic stretch of the entire Matrix trilogy is the like 15 minutes here with the Merovingian and the um, orgasmic chocolate cake and the, I mean, it, there's just so much here that, that is fascinating to me. The big kiss scene with Persephone, mm -hmm. who makes Neo, like, show him love. And obviously there's this whole, like, Hades, Persephone, like, you know, loves, love story in the underworld thing going on here. Um, but I love it. It is, it is very much, it is the Wachowskis just completely unbound from anyone telling them no, and in the best way possible. Yeah, and like I said, like, I think it is, like, 
if you're going to do this whole play on do we or do we not have free will, I, I think like the question is like so inherently farcical that you have to have this. Like you have to have, it's so like the, the question itself is so kind of pointlessly navel gazing in a way that the movie is very aware of that like having this as the way that you express it dramatically in a movie, I think is so perfectly on the nose. Um, yeah, the performances, the way it's shot, all that stuff is just calibrated, I think, like absolutely to the right um, level of silliness that it's going for. Yes, I, I love it. Um, I love the Merovingian. We'll see a little bit more of him in the third movie. And apparently, I, f I forget if this is like still true, but at some point it was reported that Lambert Wilson, who plays the Merovingian, is one of the few returning actors in the new movies. Yes, he is. He is still confirmed to be in, in Matrix Resurrections. Um, I'm fascinated by that. That I, I would like to see more of him, so I'm okay with that. Yeah, I, I hope he forces more people to have orgasms with his weird cake that he... he I love he describes it as he wrote it himself because it's actually a program. Yes. Um, it's very good. I mean, I think the shot uh, that goes in, the woman like crosses her legs, we go in through like her crotch, but now into the digital world, and we see the like code explosion in her like genitalia in her vagina, region, like, in her yeah. vagina of, the, of the orgasm is like a fascinating funny amazing like like that is something that i will say like film studies like academic film studies is very interested in is like how do movies represent digital processes like how do you filmically represent like what a computer is doing so like the matrix itself is one of the original texts of this and that the matrix does like the code like like reloaded opens with that big code sequence that becomes like a keyhole that becomes like a gear and then we eventually come out into a clock that's the kind of scene that like film studies is very interested in it's one of the reasons why michael mann's black hat is kind of a, a growing film studies favorite because of what it does with dramatizing like hacking and like information processes in like virtual space which is this kind of thing that you can't actually visualize because those digital processes don't have a visual component um and i think that the wachowskis do it with a like digital orgasm that is something that probably has not been studied enough in film studies because i want the like academic fucking conference presentation on the digital orgasm in the matrix yeah just breaking down that whole sequence frame by frame it's like and see yes. here now it like zooms in one frame closer uh into the digital pubis of the woman um, because it's the most sexually like explicit if you want to define yeah. explicit by like seeing the naughty bits like it's the most explicit thing in the movie it's just that it does it through digital representation yeah it, yes it's and it, it is and, and it's you know part of like the whole free will thing is as you're saying is is that it is um your response to stimuli right like it, which is mm -hmm. like in many ways almost like the de definition of life is like physical matter that responds to external stimuli is like what life is um and and the like sort of farcical irony of the sequence of course is that he gives her the cake so that she has the orgasm being like, ha, huh, I am toying with these humans. Look me show you this like cause and effect. The, um, like the, the cause is some sort of external stimuli. The effect is what you regard as human behavior, which is the thing that you rationalize as being free will, but is actually just the effect of some external cause you may or may not be aware of. Um, but of course, then the joke is that he then goes to the bathroom and has her suck his dick, right? Like that's 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 where it goes. Is that he is the exact same? He's no different. He's no more <laughs> superior. 
Um, and that is probably like to me the funniest part in the whole movie is where uh, Persephone is, is like uh, it's like you have like that lipstick. He's like oh, lipstick. There's no lipstick on me. It's just like yeah. Well, she wasn't kissing your lips. Um, is such a like is a very I definitely when I saw that movie in the movie theater I did not totally get what that line was saying and how like I mean, gra- how graphic that suggestion is and it's like like Jesus that is a that is a raunchy joke. I mean, as a kid, did you understand anything in this entire extended sequence? Did you understand the, what was going on with the cake? I think as a kid, I thought that was like a like a diarrhea thing going on or uh-huh. something, right? Like, yeah, I, de- I definitely have that memory of responding like, is this a sex scene thing? Or does she have to like go to the bathroom? Because he goes to the bathroom. But of course, that is code for naughty yes. things that one might do in the bathroom in a public place. Yeah, but I didn't know what like... I guess so. Two thousand three. I guess fifth grade was sex ed, but yeah. sex ed in America doesn't like teach you what an orgasm is. It just teaches you like the the raw like scientific. Side yeah, and of it, it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, you don't think about all the like physical processes that might be involved in bringing someone to orgasm via the mouth. Um, that then might have like how lipstick <laughs> would be involved in that process. Yeah, no, that was that that definitely flew over my head. But it's fucking, time. it's so fucking funny. Like that so whole, this like, it's just the most like intentionally cliche, like man and wife spatting at each other stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, and, and this is one of those where like, this is a scene that I think like so many people just like completely this, what the scene is doing just went over their heads because this is one of those that like is broadly mocked in like, it's this and the the um, rave scene, I think, are the two things in this movie that are specifically made fun of. And, um, like, you know, I, I don't know how, you know, the, the, the rave scene, I think, is, at some point might just be people's, like, discomfort with sex. This, I think, is just completely, people just didn't understand that the scene is being very funny, very much on purpose. Um, and it's, it is, like, supposed to be a joke. And it's not that the movie is being subtle. Again, crazy yeah. cartoon French accent. The dude is, as you say, it's like... I mean, it's more than Inspector Clouseau. It's like Inspector Clouseau, very, very exaggerated, you know? Um, And it's... Because it is a put-on. Like, that's the other fun part of the scene is that you're seeing this... The Merovingian is this program surrounded by programs who lives forever, who has, like, once for nothing, has no real purpose to his existence other than, like, thinking he's above people, but because he's, like, lived forever and ensconced himself in humanity, he is completely slave to carnal desires. That's all he is. He is this completely carnal being. Um, And I think that is a great little suggestion about, like, you know, there's so much, you know, in science fiction about, like, you know, what, what about, like, machines getting free will and, like, programs and AI becoming human? And I like that The Matrix's answer to that is... Him becoming human is him becoming kind of carnal and pathetic, you know? Yeah, it's just he's he's like a parody of himself, um, yes. of like what that person would be as a human. Yeah. Right. Like, it makes sense that his French accent is stupid and unrealistic because he's a machine. He wouldn't have a French accent. It is. It has to be a put-on. At yeah. some point in the Merovingian's existence, he had to choose to adopt a French accent, which is what's funny. Yeah, I mean, as he says, like, he, he can speak all the languages, and French is his favorite because it sounds so good when you curse in it, which is the most, like, petty, yes. like, thing to possibly define your entire, like, verbal identity around. Yeah, no, I love all of this, and, and I agree. I think 
the this and the, the the rave are maybe the two most maligned and well the architect scene too the architect scene also sure yeah um and uh those are the three maybe most interesting parts of the whole movie so yes. yeah, yeah i think i think without a doubt those are the three best things in the whole film um yeah yeah so what happens after this i think is it sounds like maybe the other part of the movie you and i have disagreements on because this is where we get our big sort of half hour of action you have Neo in the mansion, the big sort of kung fu fight scene with all of the, the Merovingians programs. I, I really like that scene. I think that's just good old-fashioned Matrix fun. Yeah, I, that, that scene I, I think is quite good um, because it feels very, again, it feels very immediately motivated uh, because it, part of it is just like showing up the Merovingian, right? Um, yes. And exposing him for like the ridiculous fraud that he is and, you know, like Neo can easily dispatch of all these just like random goons um there's you know he gets to fight with some sigh like he's fucking a ninja turtle um it's a good time <laughs> it's good it's and it's you know some of this movie just also needs to play with that neo has superpowers mm-hmm. so we just need a couple of scenes where he does superpower shit and here it's it's super powered but still it's like he's leveled up from the fight with smith in the first movie and he can do it with all these fucking guys and it's it's really good i think I, I, this is something the Matrix movies do that Hong Kong like action movies and kung fu movies do, but American movies don't do enough, which is just build a set to destroy it. Yes. They do it here. They do it even with the, the Seraph scene. They don't destroy it, but that set is purely built for the fight. This set, the, 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 the big lobby in the first Matrix movie, and then this set here is this big, cool set that they build entirely for the functionality of having a big, cool fight sequence and fucking that space up. And I do, I love it, because they, they fuck it up good. You get a lot of good Neo being the one. It's just a great action scene. And the music there, I love the <laughs> music throughout The Matrix Reloaded. I think it, it levels up even from what the first movie did. Um, and there's, there's just some really cool, iconic pieces of music in here, and I love the one in this stretch. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's just a really well choreographed, really well well paced, well conceptualized fight scene, and yes, it has a banger fucking song uh, behind yes. it. Now, after that is the big highway chase or the freeway. Let's just say the freeway because you're not supposed to go on the freeway in the Matrix because it's suicide. I love the freeway chase, unmitigated. I think it's a ten out of ten action scene. I love it. You are more mixed on it. I, in the abstract, I think it's an amazing action scene. When you say, watch the action scene on YouTube, removed from the context of the rest of the movie, it's extremely impressive. Um, I think in, like, the dramatic placement it has in the film, it's, like, it's a very impressive sequence that, to me, is just, like, there's so little motivating motivation behind it, right? It's not, our main character is not involved in the scene at all, right? Like, in... Trinity and Morpheus are important supporting characters and they are like interesting and they do need to have some amount of like time um, dedicated to them in the film. But I think like the amount of time that is dedicated to this scene for them is like very outsized. Like it is a long action scene um, for the main character to be totally absent from. And the like objective of the action, action scene is so abstract at this point of like, we got to protect the key maker because he's the guy who gives us the key that gets us to the thing that we're trying to get to. And this is where like the like sort of breadcrumb plotting of this kind of middle section of the movie where I think it works for me in the Merovingian scene because of the farcical element of it. I don't think it's like strong enough to sort of serve as the spine for this big action sequence um, in the way that like if you look at the first movie when you have an equ- the equivalent like really big action scenes in that movie 
it's all motivated by their desire to go get Morpheus back. That's like a really strong, heavily motivated spine to those sequences that make them feel really important and super motivated in the drama of the movie and its plotting. And here it's like, it feels like it only happens because like they want to have an action scene here and not because there's some sort of like really strong conflict that is being brought up in the plot that then necessitates a big action scene to try to resolve it, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes total sense. I don't, I can't disagree with any of that. I just don't care. <laughs> not that I don't care about your thoughts. Yes. I just don't necessarily care about that being a problem because, look, I, I think uh, I am more partial to car chases than you are. I think we've learned this over sure. many years of the podcast. Yes. Um, and just in general, I just, I find it such a truly like virtuosic action fucking symphony at this point. Um, like all of the moving pieces going on. I, I think it is like, it's like a great silent movie. I mean, it's got music and all of that is really good, but it reminds me of like some of the, like the pure kineticism of like a silent comedy or some big action sequences in Jackie Chan movies where, yes, I think as you, and, and I think the, the point you made earlier, maybe a bit talking about like Flashpoint and stuff like that is the motivation matters a little less in something like that. Um, and also they are motivated, like because they're very simple stories. Like it's, right, here's yes. a bad guy. I want to go beat up the bad guy yeah. um, is a much more straightforward motivation than, we, there's this character that we just met that seems to be able to serve a function that will get us to a thing that we need to get because a lady yes. very cryptically told us about it in a speech where she also told us that we don't have free will is not a good, strong motivation no, for like I, a 30-minute action scene. And I understand what you're saying there. But I just, I think the, the, just the filmmaking of it, the kineticism of it, the number of moving pieces that are moving in harmony, the amount of like things that happen in motion I'm just I'm fascinated by it. I think it is like a it is it's just something that completely sweeps me away. I love it every time when Neo grabs them from the explosion at the end. I want to stand up and cheer the way Harold Perrineau does behind the the screen watching it on the code. I just it it works for me. It works for me a hundred percent. I think it's so full of good moments. I like having a scene focused on Morpheus and Trinity. I kind of like this idea in like the world of the Matrix throwing because the thing why Neo can't be in this scene is Neo would just end the scene like uh -huh. he can't come in until the end because nothing in the scene would be hard for him because he could just pick up all three of them and fly away and I like the idea that Morpheus and Trinity are stranded on their own and they are doing a bunch of stuff that you're not supposed to do in the Matrix you're not supposed to fight the agents you're not supposed to go on the freeway because the agents can do all the shit on the freeway they've got the agents coming after them they've got the two ghost people coming after them and I love like how high the deck is stacked against them and how many ways you find in like almost to like a Buster Keaton-esque degree of the number and then or like Jackie Chan being like the modern equivalent of just shit that is thrown at them over the course of the sequence is very fun and it also has a scene where Morpheus stands down a big car and he cuts like a big piece off of it with a katana and then uses that opening to shoot it with an Uzi and make it blow up and kill the two ghosts and I you know I can't I'm look I'm just a human being I can't resist that it's too fucking good Lawrence Fishburne looks too good in that black leather jacket and green tie with a fucking katana. I just, it's looking a gift horse in the, in the mouth to, to not love that. I mean, I like that sequence a lot. 
the problem is that like that it feels like a scene that is from like the hypothetical matrix Two. here we go again right it is like we want it's the reason i think why this is the scene that like whatever people say about the matrix reloaded this is a scene that people really like and it makes sense because it's like this is the sequence that most feels like a scene from the first movie because it's not dealing with the specific like thematic concerns of of the matrix reloaded it's not interested in exploring the more like kind of heightened superpower element that the, the other action sequences in this movie have because neo's not involved and so it is the most like let's do a scene that like we couldn't do for the first movie because it would have been too cr fucking crazy in terms of like the scale um it's only because we have the buy-in from that first movie being so successful you can even attempt something like this um and let's go for it the problem is that it's just like it just in a movie that otherwise is very heady and is very concerned with a lot of, like of big thematic ideas this sequence feels totally out of place regardless of how well it's done and i think it is incredibly well done and i think the other problem that then the movie runs into is that after you have this you then have the whole ending sequence which is composed of things that are like could be easily much more easily reframed as like big action set pieces that are much more heavily motivated in character um that then the ending sequence of the movie is presented in this very kind of like compressed fragmented way when it's like we just spent 30 minutes in this giant freeway action scene that was very cool but doesn't feel like it sort of like does anything really immediate or necessary for the story that's being told in this film. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I, I don't disagree with your analysis because I think you're right. I just, I just, it works for me. So I don't know what else to say. <laughs> you know, um, I don't have that same issue with it, even though I think I definitely have had that issue with like other movies and other times. I think it, it being, I'm just impressed with it enough that it, it works for me. Um, I also love the lore around it. They built an entire 1.5 mile freeway for this. This was not shot on an actual freeway. They built it on old runways at the Naval Air Station in Alameda, California, because they could not find an actual stretch of freeway that would allow them to do this. That is one of the most like crazy flexes I've ever heard of in making a big like Hollywood movie. Yeah. I, I think my favorite moment in this whole sequence is is actually before all of it starts, where they're going down that hallway and Morpheus just stops and grabs a fucking like katana that is just like like just sitting there on like this piece of armor in like where the fuck they are at that point because they're going through all like the doors that take them to different places. And it's, I love that he's just like, you know what I'm gonna need? I'm gonna need this fucking samurai sword. It's like I know we've got a bunch of guns and shit, but I'm gonna stop here. And it's like this is gonna come in fucking handy eventually. I tell you what. And but that's what I mean about how good the sequence is, because you have this katana, and it is it does feel like a prop in a Jackie Chan movie, in that it is used in so many ways over the course of that the, this like extended action sequence of he does the thing with the car he stabs the the ghost out of the car when they're all fighting in the little car that Trinity is driving he does then he's using it to like swing himself up on the truck when he fights the agent then he falls off it gets the sword back does the thing with the agent again like I love that they like give him a katana and then they fucking use it in so many cool ways in like creative filmic kinetic ways over the course of the sequence yeah that's just really well done yeah, I, what's funny is that neither of us are disagreeing with what any of the other are saying, which is like a matter of degrees here. I think of like what side of it weighs us down more or builds us up more. You know what I mean? Yeah, I um, just, I just think like it's just something where like I, I, in the context of the rest of the movie, I just really needed it to have more like sense of like yeah. meaning to it 
than it had. And, and it almost kind of reminds me a little bit like this. It's a slightly different thing. But I had a similar feeling at like the end of Rogue One, where there's so many people who really love the big action climax of that movie. And I felt totally alienated by it because half of the action climax of Rogue One is completely absent of any of the characters in that film. And like those sequences only exist to increase the scale of the action. This is like not exactly that same thing, but I had a similar feeling of alienation from the action because it felt so removed from like any of the other things that the movie was doing that it felt like the thing that you get in a Mission Impossible movie where the action scenes are conceptualized before like the story of the movie is conceptualized. But a Mission Impossible movie is just an action movie and that's kind of it. And The Matrix Reloaded isn't that. So that same kind of feeling or approach just doesn't really work for me. Yeah. No, I understand what you're saying. Uh, I was looking up some of those production details. Another Here's another fun fact. Around 97% of the materials used to make sets in this movie were recycled, including tons of wood that were sent to Mexico to build low-income housing. Nice. That's nice. That's more... I, I don't know if that's a standard thing movies do. I mean, movies don't build sets anymore. It's one of the things that sucks <laughs> about modern movies. But if they do build sets again, that's a good thing to do. I like that idea. <laughs> do, do, what do you think they did with that katana? They just, like, send it to some <laughs> random person that's like, you, you could use this, you know, it's a bit big to use as, like, a, a kitchen knife. But, hey, you could, you could give it a Man, shot. Man... If I were Lawrence Fishburne, I would have a house with a long hallway with, like, all my costumes and props and all the uh -huh. cool shit I've worn in movies. Because, man, Lawrence Fishburne is a cool motherfucker. I love him. Yeah, I would just have, like, a big, you know, box that, you know, people have, like, to keep their, like, jewelry in. I would have that, but it was just all the sunglasses I wore across <laughs> the three Matrix movies. If you're Lawrence Fishburne, how do you not just, like, show up? Like, every time someone comes over to your house in the sunglasses, sitting in, like, a red leather chair yeah. with a fucking long trench coat, <laughs> you know? Yes. With a red pill and a blue pill out on a table. <laughs> I do, I think a fun little visual callback, the scene that they're in during the big, you kind of mentioned this earlier, the big sort of interconnected montage where they show all of the build-up to them getting to the, the architect through this, like, fragmentary, like, montage structure... The little room that they're in, I think, is supposed to be the room where he, like, gives mm -hmm. Neo the speech in the first movie because he's in that same chair um, when he's t telling them about, like, the purpose of our lives leads to tonight. That whole thing. Yes, I think, like, Morpheus is like, this will be very poetic, guys. Let's go back to that. You know, hey, yes. Neo, you know that place we had that talk? Let's go back there before we go fuck this shit up. Morpheus would absolutely have a sense of, like, poetic full-circledness. Yes. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about this this last stretch of the movie. Um, I actually, I like, so I understand there's definitely you could do more of some of that action as like a fully articulated action sequence. I've always found the construction of that montage where they're like laying out the plan and we see all of the pieces of it happening a little out of order. I find that a very like compelling piece of filmic construction and also like incredibly well put together on an editorial level. Um has always been very striking to me yeah i do i do think i like it as it exists it just kind of confuses me that you that like that the movie spent so much time and energy on this like big action scene that really doesn't need to exist when you then present a big action scene immediately afterwards it's like well this is like feels really motivated by the plot and it involves all the characters in this like complex yeah. way 
Um, and it feels like you could have fleshed that out a little bit more. This is also where, and this does not actually bother me, but it, I guess the good note is that this is also where the last level into the Matrix is, right? Is like Niobe's whole side of it, where it's like Niobe's here is like, I'm going to go off to my video game. I'm going to go beat the video game over here. Then you guys go over to that one and you'll all die. And then Neo and, and Morpheus, you do the real shit. It, like, I don't think it actually matters for the movie. Um, like, I don't no. think it's, it's not a thing where like, I'm sitting there waiting with bated breath to see a giant action set piece with Niobe in it. Um, but, but it is something to like note that that's kind of where they put this. Yeah. I've, I've heard that complaint from some people that like, oh, the problem with Matrix Reloaded is that there's all that stuff in Enter the Matrix you have to get to understand this movie. That's not true. Like I've seen people complain about the moment where Niobe rescues Morpheus with the car. That moment would exist without the game. Like Uh that's a totally common thing to do in an action movie because it's a deus ex machina but a very motivated one because we know the movie does give you niobe is on her way to like figure this shit out yeah and it wouldn't be a fun surprise in the movie if they if they did the director's cut where we intercut gameplay from enter the matrix of her driving to save morpheus like it's the game is a fun bonus it is not as like because i've also seen academic analyses of like the matrix is an example of modern intertextuality because to understand it you have to play a game and watch an anime and watch the movie and that's not that's not true it's not true yeah like because it doesn't if you didn't know that video game existed you, like none of that would stand out to you like i no. think you might be a little bit like raise your eyebrows at how fragmentary this like ending sequence is presented but the ending sequence is presented that way not because the enter the matrix exists um, no. like that's because I don't think they wouldn't have focused on the Niobe stuff as much anyways. Um, yeah, it's, it is. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's something that I don't think in any way is a problem with the movie. And, and as you say, I think it, it feels to me like they came up with the plot for matrix reloaded. Then they were like, okay, we can also do this video game thing. They had like a minor character in the plot of the matrix reloaded that they bumped up a little bit more. And then they're like, and then here's like some spaces for those that character to do something that then does not affect the main plot of the movie at all because Enter the Matrix's story is entirely like a fucking filler Dragon Ball movie or some shit, right? If like none of it ever happened, none of it ever matters, like no big lore is revealed, there's no huge surprises, nothing of any significance happens, nobody turns Super Saiyan 7 or whatever. It's just like a very whatever story that if it didn't exist, nobody would even notice. Well, now I'm sad. In in Matrix, Neo never goes Super Saiyan Seven. Yeah, he <laughs> skips right to Super Saiyan Ten. <laughs> All right. Um, do you think we'll get there eventually with Dragon Ball, Sean? I mean, they stopped numbering it forever ago. Um, That's true. That's this, true. At this point, what would we like... be at now? If we went to three, and then we have God, and we have Blue, and we have, I guess, Ultra Instinct, would that count? That would be six. Yeah, the six, or or maybe seven if you split Ultra Instinct into two. Um, because Super Saiyan like, Four was in there somewhere. It's just like that's no, that's that's non-canon. Like that doesn't coexist with Super Saiyan God. So Super Saiyan God is like the new Super Saiyan Four. All right. Anywho, we're getting off track here. You yeah, this the is the wrong time to talk about Dragon Ball in relation to the fucking Matrix. We need to save that for the next movie. That's very, very true. All you people saying you want a live-action Dragon Ball movie, we got it. It's called the Matrix Revolutions, and you know no one's going to do better than that. Anyway. Yep. Let's uh, let's move because we've seen people try. All right, um, you want to talk about the architect, Sean? Yes, let's 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 talk uh, talk about Colonel Sanders. 
Um, Sean, I have. I, I'm I'm sending you in the chat a link to a transcript of the architect scene because I think it might be helpful to have the full dialogue in front of uh-huh. you. <laughs> um, yes, it is very I dense. I did I did like watch the scene and then I went back and I turned subtitles on to watch it again because that man talks very quickly. Um, it's like I want to like sit here and like actually really try to absorb everything that he's saying and not just like the main ideas because there's a there's a lot of stuff going on here. A lot of stuff going on here. Uh, what I love about so this is a this website where I found a transcript, Lee'sMovieInfo.net. This is the most 2003 web page I've ever seen. Yes. And I, one of the things I love is that because he uses a bunch of big words, there are like hyperlinked definitions of some of the words like ergo, concordantly, pertinent, inexorably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> anyway, Sean. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about the architect scene, but people know some of them. Let's start with you. What do you think about the architect scene? I love it. I I think it's uh, I think you kind of like already suggested a lot of the stuff that I love about it, but like it serves as like such a fascinating contrast to the um the rave scene, which as you say like are like kind of almost like symmetrical points in the movie. Um, where the architect is not quite right at the end. Uh, we got a little bit after this, and the rave scene is not quite at the beginning. You've got a little bit of setup before it. Um, and it is this sort of just like flat, dry, here it is, um, straight from the word of God or from the mouth of God, basically, the explanation of what the one is. And it's where like you get, you know, we haven't talked much about like the Marxisty kind of stuff in the Matrix because it's not super heavy for a lot of the Matrix Reloaded. But I do think it's like very prevalent here of the architect talking about that this is not the first Matrix, right? It's the sixth, which I, in my memory, it was always like some like inconceivably large number. I didn't realize it's like there haven't been that many matrixes because this is a very common plot device at this point that was not as common back then. But we really like um, it, particularly like video games do this all the fucking time. Like, like Mass the, Effect? Yes, is. Mass Effect, Assassin's Creed, Halo. Like once you get to Halo 4, Halo 4 starts doing this. Like the big cyclical like movements of history and all that kind of stuff and the revelation of like this is not the first time that this has happened. Anime loves the shit out of this. Um, which Turn is probably, a Gundam. Yeah, like this is yeah. probably, I'm going to guess there's some anime, I don't know what it specifically was, but almost certainly was the specific influence for this with the Wachowskis because it is a super common plot device in anime and anime adjacent media it's like every visual novel since like 1992 or some shit has had some version of like it's all actually like the you replaying the game over and over and go through roots happens in some sort of like metatextual sense that there actually are like cycles or some shit so it's that kind of thing it's a hilariously small number for cycles because i again i usually think of it as like it's an infant number like who knows how many matrices it's been it has been six matrices um he's the sixth one and every time they go through this cycle, it, it exists basically to kind of like incorporate the elements that are created within the system through, you know, the, the problem of human choices, they describe it. But whatever like dissident factions that ex- will exist inevitably within the system and to reincorporate and integrate those things back into the system and therefore making the system better. Um, and it will never be perfect. There will always be another one. The cycle will always continue because the the problem of human choice will always exist, but it feels like this big way of dramatizing this phenomena that like in Marxist criticism is very real of that capitalism incorporates the things that are produced within the culture to try to tear down capitalism. Um, and it reincorporates those things into the capitalistic structure and thus makes it even more robust 
like and good examples of that phenomena are like the matrix in and of itself as a piece of very capital media it is something that you buy it is made through the process of capital it is sold right like the the profits from the matrix films primarily go to like billionaires at these fucking movie studios and that kind of stuff um so it, the matrix while it is a, a product that culturally is motivated against capitalism is giving you messages against capitalism is itself integrated and incorporated into the mechanisms of capitalism to make itself even more fierce because any thought that exists to defy the capital structures are actually just produced by the capital structures so that it can be controlled and this is like the kind of cycle that is being taken and dramatized here um through like the prophecy of the one and all that kind of stuff yeah it also makes me think of like fucking twitter brands trying to be woke uh -huh. or stuff like that yes. like you know when all the twitter brands want to tweet about pride and it's like you know what part of the point of pride is tearing you the fuck down <laughs> like, yes it's know, the way up. yeah it's that's a very good thing of observation of like it's the way that like like progressive or radical left like political language and stuff like that like being woke and all that shit is slowly sort of like watered down and reincorporated into broader political speech that then strips it of all of its like original meaning and turns it into something that is very quaint and non-threatening and that yeah. like well can make people feel like they're being cool or woke or radical or whatever but in fact you're just like further reinforcing and pushing yourself deeper into like the the control of the system that you are a part of yes because the way they describe it because and this is something that i want to get into is that this is people still have this weird feeling that like the matrix didn't explain enough this scene explains everything you could possibly want yeah. to ask about the lore of the matrix it gives it to you surgically like a fucking textbook and part of that is he lays out what we heard in the first movie which is that matrix 1.0 was a utopia it was too perfect and then it broke down Matrix 2.0, it sounds like from the architect, went too far in the other direction and like was trying to control too much. And that is when the Oracle comes in and he says, like, if I am the father of the Matrix, she, it must be said, is its mother. Oh, that whole thing. And the mm -hmm. mother of the Matrix, the Oracle says, you have to allow them, even if it is completely subconscious, some element of choice. They have to be aware that the reality is wrong. And so it is coded into the Matrix Everything we saw in that first movie of Neo sort of waking up and realizing the Matrix has you and all of that, that is an allowance of the machines because they have to have people have that choice at least a little bit or else they will not accept their own enslavement, basically. And then over time, enough people come to accept that and realize it, that there is a actual danger to the system because enough people will start to rebel and try to break out. And if that is the case, then you create the one who will be the prophecy that everyone will flock to that. That will be the thing that people will build their rebellion around. The one will return to the source. This is the sixth time it's happened. He comes to the source and then at the source is told Zion will be destroyed. The only way you can save humanity is to basically reset the matrix and in so doing reset humanity. He says you will choose 13 females and seven males and all of this. Um, and that is the whole process. And it is like, one, I think a very cool lore dump. There is something I think metatextual going on here about the audience's desire for answers. And then as you say, Sean, it is this really smart, like very applicable model of capitalism in the fiction of the Matrix that like 
really kind of hits the nail on the head of how these systems work. By doing it through this like cold computer structure, it actually makes it even easier, I think, to understand the Marxist critique. Yeah, and, and that like the fact that you know it doesn't mean that you can do anything about it is part of the, yes. the thing as well, right? That like the architect sits here and tells Neo all of this, knowing that whether or not Neo is even aware of all these things doesn't matter because, you know, he's going to, I mean, part of it is like the free will thing. Neo is going to make the choice he's going to make no matter what. Um, like, like the input that the architect can give is not enough to like overwhelm the emotional input of Trinity's impending death. Um, but also that it's like our knowledge of the ways that these systems work so far has not stunted the ways that the systems have functioned, right? Because like, because Marxist thought and Marxist criticism and Marxist analysis is in of itself has been integrated and incorporated into like the systems of capitalism, right? Because the way that I learned about Marxism was at a public institution uh, that I went to and I paid money to attend, right? And that like institution makes profit um, by exploiting the people that work at it. Uh, it's like, it's, it's, it's kind of a, like, the, this terrifying thing about the system of capitalism is that it is like, feels utterly inescapable when you are in the midst of it, because anything you try to do to escape it, and historically so far has been done to try to escape it, is just reincorporated. Um, and, and there's something about just like the cold, flat, just here it is, and there's nothing you can do about it, nature of what the architect is saying, that I find very compelling. Absolutely. And I think paired with that then, and this this is where I think the Matrix as an entity, as a series, whatever, is always at its richest, is when these things can be multivalent. We talked about this a lot in the last episode, right, Sean? Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is one where it is this big Marxist critique that is a really, really powerful presentation of it that kind of recolors the whole trilogy for you because it is this pivotal scene. But I think it is also a really great scene about storytelling and like what audience expectations are. Because I really, I, I, so I wrote this last night. I think at some point I should probably develop an actual like thesis on this at some point. But I think the architect scene sort of both anticipates and in its anticipation refutes our like brain dead cinema sins generation by giving the viewer all the answers. And as we said, it's clean and plain. It's cold, unfeeling logic. It just tells you. This is like, it could not be more plain and clear. It's dense, but it's not it's not like subtle or anything like that, right? Yeah, it's basically and, like he just is right reading like the synopsis from the fucking fan wiki to you is more yes. or less what he's doing. Yes. So it gives you all the answers, and in giving you all the answers, it also tells you it doesn't fucking matter because to acquiesce to the system of answers is to surrender your own humanity at the door and not have any choice or or will in it, right? Um, and like knowing all of it doesn't actually change in the Marxist critique, doesn't change that the system exists. The knowing is not the thing that tears down the system, you know? Mm -hmm. But then also I think in the storytelling side of it, getting like this scene is on paper. What everyone who ever complained about the ending of Lost, every one of those fucking CinemaSins videos that doesn't know how movies work, 
any of those like modern critiques of like the story didn't make sense because there was this thing and then they didn't explain the thing. The entire the, cottage market on YouTube of people like with those awful thumbnails of like the ending of Dune explained. Exactly. It wasn't a confusing movie, but there's like a then you look at that movie that video has like eight million views or some shit. No, it's one of the most popular things. Yeah, that that is the one that drives me fucking crazy now is the ending of X explained. I saw that for fucking the new James Bond movie, which I won't spoil it but if you've seen the new james bond movie there's nothing subtle or like like that needs to be explained about the end of that movie because the thing that happens is very absolute like and it's just everywhere is that shit and the ending of king kong explained it was beauty that killed the beast in the video <laughs> yes exactly yeah well you see when a monkey falls from a high enough height the trauma of the impact will kill it yeah, yeah like basically the architect scene is exactly what every one of those critiques is asking for. It is the scene where someone sits you down and holds your hand and calmly and clearly talks you through everything. And I think what is revelatory about the scene and what is like, and I think gets more interesting about it with every fucking passing year is that the whole point of the scene is that getting all the answers doesn't really matter. It isn't actually significant. It's what Neo then goes and does that matters because of the door he chooses and the revolution that comes after that. The actual like sitting down and being explained everything, it is alienating. Like the scene is startling to a certain degree because it is so sort of alien and cold and weird. And it's often been made fun of and like, oh, it's dense and confusing and blah, 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 blah. But like, that's the whole point is that it is weird in a story to get to the point where God sits you down and tells you his entire plan because in doing that, you realize how insignificant you are. And I think that is one of the brilliant things about The Matrix Reloaded. It is really prophetic about where media criticism was going to go in the 20 years after its production. Yeah, and, and it's also just like it, it resonates so much with the rest of the themes of the movie of like that sense of free will. Is, is that like if you are whether or not you are aware of you having free will like again it's that thing of like it's pointless like the answer to the question do you have free will or not is not a productive answer there's no way to give a productive answer to that question actually because if you don't have free will then the question had no point in the first place right the, the, the question itself was just a a product of you having no free will and you have no ability to express any authority or power behind it um and, and this is kind of the same thing of like getting the answers to these kinds of questions don't really matter what matters is the thing that you saw at the beginning of the movie right what matters is that like human connection what matters is like that feeling that emotion that thing that gives you a, that sense of purpose through human connection and emotion and happiness and joy like that's the stuff that matters it's not colonel sanders in a white room telling you the way that the world works because the way that the world works is a thing that can be explained to people it's not like so incredibly complicated and sophisticated that like the average person can't understand it after like a 10 minute long conversation about that kind of shit it's like you, you can you can get it it makes sense but it doesn't matter like it, it shouldn't change the way that you live your life necessarily because you don't have the ability to fucking destroy the architect or rip down this system just by going through that one door or the other door yeah it's you know i'm i'm looking at some of my notes from when i wrote about this in january and one of the things I said is that the movie kind of neuters all possible lore questions where I think mm -hmm. fans 
have a lot of unhealthy relationships. Yeah, I think is one way to uh, say that in a, a calm way, is that there's a lot of unhealthy relationships online with lore. And it neuters that by just giving you all the answers, which leaves you with no choice but to consider the actual themes on display, right? Mm-hmm. The actual meat of the story. And, you know, it also, and, and I think it is kind of the masterstroke of the entire trilogy in like a structural sense, is it's the midpoint of the story is where it gives you all of the answers and then Neo has to say, well, I'm not ready for the story to end, right? He has to say, well, I'm not going to play by the script anymore because the script, what he's supposed to do is go through the left door and reset the matrix and that's the end. But he doesn't. He says, I'm not ready for it to end and he goes through the other door to a more contingent future and to a more revolutionary future as the next movie is going to say and and that is kind of especially now you go back to like the Marxist critique that's the whole point is that like knowing what the system is is one side of it it's then you know that's the first time when Neil walks through the wrong door that's the first time he's not actually playing by the system that has been laid out and not following that script Um, and that is what opens up the, the next movie and we get a little preview of it at the end here that now he has completely unanticipated powers in stopping the sentinels in the real world and all these barriers breaking down right mm-hmm. yeah and, and, and of course that being like the extension of like a lot of the like philosophical the buddhisty kind of stuff that is not as much a part of a lot of this movie in the sense of like him seeing the code as this like shorthand for nirvana right and like revelation um and, and it being here, this thing that now breaks into what we understand in the context of the movie being actual reality and him seeming to have achieved some version of that in the real world um, is like like pushing that up to this other layer where all of his revelation, his nirvana, all of that stuff was just incorporated into the system. It wasn't really real. Now he has to try to make it actually real by breaking out of like the system and not being a part of the Matrix. Right. Yeah, and it, and it is bringing up all sorts of thorny questions, as we said. And, um, you know, you all can, can be the judge of whether you think the third movie follows up on this satisfactorily. But I do think, like, this is the movie, you know, actually paying off the big questions it's laying down is with a scene that is pretty stylistically and narratively radical in how just plain and clear it is. And in saying that this thing that is usually the goal or is not usually the goal, but is often the goal of storytelling and is often the thing that modern audiences want is not the point and is not the salvation that you think it is. Like, Morpheus was wrong. The one, mm-hmm. the, the chosen one thing isn't real. Or that if it is real, who's doing the choosing really fucking matters if there's a chosen one, right? Yeah. Um, and if the person doing the choosing is the person in part of the system you're in control of the system and you want to dismantle the system, then the chosen one isn't going to be the thing that's going to save you, at least in that sense. And I think all of that is just beautiful and fascinating and and wonderful. And it's just every time I watch it, I, I find that more sort of invigorating and interesting, especially because, you know, then I go on Twitter and I see another fucking... The ending of Halloween Kills explained. Michael Myers killed everyone. He stabs them with a knife. It's not ambiguous. No Halloween movie is ambiguous. He takes a big knife and he stabs people and they die. You don't need to explain it for the love of God. Like, but for some reason we want to do that. And you know what? If the next Halloween movie wants to do a scene with the fucking architect sitting Michael Myers down and telling him why he kills people, I will stand up and applaud in the audience because it'll be funny. Yeah, it's, it's, 
It's a thing of where this, the, the way this scene is handled is one of the main things that shuts down the notion of like the Infinite Matrix franchise, right? Because it's yes. like once you've had, you know, Colonel Sanders read you the Wikipedia entry on what the Matrix is, like there's, it shuts down the like, oh, we can tell a story in this corner of the universe and in this corner of the universe because the universe is explained or like the Matrix part of the universe is explained and is explicable within the bounds of the movie. So it's like there's not the infinite imagination space to do the expanded universe matrix novels because they would all feel so pointless because it's just like, well, what's the point of telling another story in this setting when all the rest of what, like the purpose that the universe serves is like how it has already been told in this other story. It's not equivalent to a Star Wars where, you know, Star Wars exists in a random universe that has no purpose and you can tell whatever stories you want because it's just a cool world that has cool history and cool, like, art it evokes a lot of things with like the style and culture that they created for that fictional setting this is like this very contained boxed thing and this is them like saying we're closing the lid on this box we're going to give you that next movie and then after that it's closed and it's done until you know we make one more movie like 20 years later and we'll find out what that one is um but but this Which, like very this, well might not even be in the same continuity yes. from what we're seeing like you know it could be a totally different thing yeah, but this is like, to me, this is like the number one reason why you don't have the thousand Matrix like spinoff things that you would expect from a franchise that was this successful. Yeah, like what would you do? Would you do this the HBO Max series about like the fifth one and his journey? And like, that would be the most boring shit in the world because you know it's he's just a pawn, right? Yeah, or it's, it's, it's my hit Netflix spinoff um, that's just called Ghost and it's The Adventures of Ghost. The guy that nobody played as of the two playable characters in Enter the Matrix. Um, and let's just see, what what is he up to um, in, in the world? Like, what, what was he doing during the events of the original Matrix movie? I think is the question that everyone has really been asking about these films. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's great. But going back to what you said about Neo starting to, like, see the universe, I forgot there's one line in this movie from the Oracle conversation we forgot to mention that is the most Gundam thing ever said in a Hollywood movie which is when the Oracle says to Neo, you have the sight now, Neo. You are looking at the world without time. Yes. I fucking love that line. That is such. That made me sit up and go like, oh my God. She, she's like one step away from telling him you're going to cry the tears of time. Yes. <laughs> anyway. So yeah, and then you do get the ending where, I mean, this is obviously a big preview of what's going to happen in Revolutions, but out in the real world, him seeing the code in reality and stopping the Sentinels I think it's such a cool fucking idea, yeah. man. It's rocks. It's, I, yeah, I it's love just, the wake. It's exactly what it needed to be. Like it's that thing where it's yeah. just like as soon as it happens, you're like, yes, this is what this is what must happen. It's such a good, just good conceptualized idea. Yeah, because and again, it's it's and it is also paying off the idea that now that we have done the thing with the architect and Neo has gone through the wrong door, things will change, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's also part of like. One of the things that I just, and you know, maybe if there's other listeners who, who have not seen these movies in a while, I will warn you about Revolutions, and I think it was something that was off-putting to people at the time. It does not feel like the other Matrix movies. It's really different. It mostly doesn't happen in the Matrix. It is much grittier. It is much darker. And I think that it's very necessary because once you've done the architect scene, you can't go do another big highway chase. You can't go do another, like, mansion kung fu fight sequence the closest you can do is the dragon ball fight at the end and even that's pretty different than what we've seen so far right mm -hmm. um you know 
it's it, it really closes off certain avenues and makes you go in a new direction and I think the Neo stopping the Sentinels and then falling into a coma is a good sort of encapsulation of, of a promise of that's where the story is going Yes, and then you get the real promise of what the story is where the story is going because there was the one survivor of the Sentinel attacks, and it's Agent Smith. Bum bum bum. To be continued. I think it's a pretty killer cliffhanger. Yes, I love it. I, it's just just because I want to see more Agent Smith because he's the fucking best, and and there's yeah. not enough of him in this. I mean, there are a lot of him in this movie, but there's not <laughs> enough of him in this movie. Well, there's there's many more of him in the next movie, and yeah, I do like uh, obviously all the stuff with Bane, who is the body that Smith is in will be more prominent in the next movie, so I will save anything for that. But I do like all the little hints in this movie. Like, just the implication of Smith taking over this guy and then becoming his mind in the real world, and then he starts cutting his hand because uh-huh. he's, like, so fascinated in flesh is just a... Uh, it's it's all a teaser for the next movie, but it's why the cliffhanger is so effective. Yes. Yeah. We also... We didn't talk about Neo saving Trinity and... Um, massaging her heart back to life after taking the bullet out i think that's a pretty cool fucking scene yeah naruto did it better but it's it's pretty well done (laughs) how does naruto do it well naruto himself doesn't do it sakura does it to naruto but but yeah there is a sequence in naruto where sakura physically beats his heart because naruto is going to die um and she keeps him alive by opening up his chest and putting her hand in there and pumping his heart with her fucking hand because naruto is sick nice I mean that's just what I mean. Doctors do that sometimes too. Yeah. You know, but yeah. but but this is a ninja doing it, Jonathan. Okay, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Sakura and Naruto aren't in love though, right? No, right? no. Naruto had a crush on Sakura, but it, it went unrequited, and and that actually that character dynamic is very well uh, executed. Right. Well. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I need to watch Naruto sometime when we do weekly suit Naruto, one episode at a time. We'll spend an entire year and a half on filler. Um, <laughs> More than a year and a half. I, I haven't even seen any of the filler, so that would be a new experience for me. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, but I do. I think that's an interesting idea, and it's a big romantic ending. And it is another thing, though, that the movie is playing on, because the next movie does not have that ending. So, you know, we'll see. I do like when Nero, Neo, like, you know, he makes his hand, like, incorpor- incorporeal in the Matrix, and then, like, pulls the bullet out. The only problem I have with that is, like, the bullet's not made incorporeal. So when he's removing the bullet, presumably that would have just ripped through her fucking organs. Um, but, you know. Well, maybe it's like his hand. It, he makes it incorporeal. And then, like, when it comes back out, it's corporeal again. I don't know. We don't it just, see it, like, ripping through her organs. Yeah. They, I think that it's, like, there's something about the way that that is shot. That it, like, the because the bullet looks so much more physical. It's like, okay, I feel like that would be pulling some, some shit out if you just... Went in and grabbed it and pulled the bullet out. It's also a very good example of, like, the absolute nonsense movie shorthand of, like, oh, you've been shot with a bullet. Well, if we pull the bullet out, everything will be fine. It's not how gunshot wounds work. No, but, like, I think what's interesting about that scene, and there's, there's only so far they can go with it, because at a certain point this idea is hard to visualize... The point is that like Neo's powers have leveled up to the degree yeah. where it, this isn't a physical body he's fixing. He's fixing the code. Like, yeah. that's what he's doing. And I think that's a really... I mean, and again, that is that is one of those moments that is like very defining to, I think, who the Wachowskis are, is this like mix of like big romantic gesture with like really like heady technological stuff going on. You yeah, know and I mean? like this weird kind of abstract symbolic representation of it. Because I want to make it very clear, I like I like that sequence. I'm 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 yeah, like I'm 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 cutely ribbing it. I don't actually care any about that shit because I think it's well done. Yeah. 
No, it's great. Uh, and then you end with another Rage Against the Machine song that I was actually listening to right before we recorded. It's a good song. Yeah, um, I, do, I do think that, like, I, I like the Rage Against the Machine song. There's something about, like, this movie is so stylistically different that I do find, like, the the going to the Rage Against the Machine song doesn't play as much as for me as the first movie does. Because the <laughs> ending of this movie is, like, very dark and upsetting. Because it's, like, because you all come out of the Matrix into this, like... You know, I, obviously we're already in like an apocalyptic setting, but the apocalyptic with the apocalypse within the apocalyptic setting where you found out that the Sentinels have destroyed a bunch of their like ships and everything's fucked up and the Nebuchadnezzar's been destroyed. And now it's the Rage Against the Machine song is like a very different energy than like you can break free of the Matrix too. Now I'm going to fly into the sky like Superman. Hit Rage Against the Machines. Yeah. Um, no, I totally get it. Um, and yeah, the, the Nebuchadnezzar itself getting destroyed is uh is sad he has the he he morpheus says i have dreamed a dream but now that dream is gone from me which is the the quote from the bible um but from the historical nebuchadnezzar and uh i i like that moment yeah we also haven't talked about how fucking cool the ships are in the matrix i just realized like over these two episodes i fucking love they're these like ships with these like magnetic sides that they're like sailing off of these like fucking metal pipes through the world mm -hmm. those ships are just really cool yeah, there's a real good, like, just everything's just like this harsh, like, corrugated fucking metal with big jagged edges on it and, like, big, thick fucking black cables everywhere. Like, there's definitely this just, like, hard tech, um, like, cyberpunk aesthetic to the technology in yes. um, Matrix that I really love. Like, everything is so grimy and dirty and fucked up. And it really just looks like all the ships were just sort of glued together from random pieces of scrap and shit like that. Uh, it's, well, because, yeah. like, and I love there's the scene, so they, there's the three ships that are together, as Morpheus tells us, you know, if there's three captains, three ships, three missions, this must be fate. Um, and one of them um, gets destroyed because the guy is running across the little bridge and the ship is just fucked up and it falls and impales the other guy and uh -huh. sends blood all over the screen just because the ships are gnarly and fucked up. This is this a really good... This kind of, it becomes like a very Hitchcockian thing where he keeps running over the like broken part of the bridge and you're waiting for it to, to blow. That's one of the, the... That montage, I think, again, is just so well constructed. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those ships are definitely an OSHA fucking nightmare for sure. <laughs> Yes, that's going to be the plot of the Matrix uh, Resurrections. Is uh, Neo is going to be the new OSHA administrator on the Nebuchadnezzar? It's like you got to make sure that none of this metal comes to a sharp point. You're just asking for like an inconvenient impaling at some point. All right. Anything else to say about the Matrix Reloaded? I th I, th I think I've enjoyed this conversation. I think this is like kind of summed up pretty well my feelings on it. Of like, I love all the ideas so much. There's a lot of stuff in the movie I love. Like, for me, some of the action stuff I wish was, like, more conceptualized to be in line with a lot of the headier, like, themes and what those themes are saying. Um, but it is still, like, all those criticisms are very much kind of grading on a scale because it is such an impressive, interesting, different, radical kind of sequel um, that is so much more interesting than just getting a Matrix 2. Um, and I did have a very good time rewatching it. And I'm very excited to watch uh, Matrix Revolutions um, and, and see sort of sort of see where the story goes half with fresh eyes because again like half that movie i just don't remember what happened in it yeah i'm excited too and this was a really fun and i think rewarding conversation that shows if nothing else there's a lot of rich ideas going on here um because we hit three hours and i didn't even notice this kind of flew by yes so. i i thought this, this was going to be a very short podcast because we didn't have a lot of stuff at the top of it and no <laughs> this is a very nope. normal sized podcast for us next week We'll talk about something. We're not sure yet. We'll figure it out. We'll let you know. 
but there will be more weekly stuff now that we're in the 400s fucking hell yeah it's crazy and at some point here i i need to crack into this fresh fresh copy of enter the matrix now that i finally watched the movie i need to know what the fuck was ghost up to that whole goddamn time 